Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, if you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Ah, uh, it's it could happen here. It's 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 it could happen here. A podcast that it is. It's happening to you here right now. Bad things. Good things, all sorts of things, because today we are talking about the ultimate in bad good things, Donald Trump's indictment uh, and very brief arrest. Uh, Garrison, Davis, James Stout, uh, how, how are we all doing today? How are we all feeling this week? We did it, Joe. Mission yeah. accomplished. <laughs> time, to, time to pack up. Yeah, Dark yeah. Brandon has come for Trump, uh, <laughs> finally. <laughs> <laughs> so I figured we would wait until, you know, a few days had gone by. There were a lot of when the initial indictment was announced, we didn't even actually know what all the charges were. Um, there was a, a pretty long period of time that we didn't know, like, what the actual crime at the center of this was. Uh, but but most of that has now is now relatively clear, um, as are kind of the earliest stages of the fallout to the Trump indictment. So I, I feel like. Now is a reasonably good time to talk about it. More may have, you know, occur since we occurred since we recorded this. But broadly speaking, um, 
the thing that Trump got indicted by, uh, as according to the 13-page court filing um, outlining the case against him by Manhattan District Attorney Al- Alvin Bragg, was what's called a catch-and-kill scheme, uh, in which Trump and you know his his Trumpettes would basically bribe people to not write bad stories about him. Um, you know, it's a hush money thing. My assumption is that basically everybody at that level of wealth and prominence does versions of the same thing. Um, and these, in fact, are not crimes on their own. You can bribe somebody not to say a bad, talk about a bad thing you did to the press. Um where things get illegal is that Trump, you know, made a series of payments, primarily these hundred and thirty-ish thousand dollars in payments to Stormy Daniels, um, to to buy her quiet, um, and then he had to falsify company records or his people falsified company records to disguise the payments as legal fees. Um, Bragg is arguing that not only is this a crime, but it's a felony crime uh, because he did this. He falsified these records to disguise disguise these payments in order to further additional violations of the laws. Um, And those additional violations of the laws, the actual like core crime here is that disguising under New York law, disguising these kind of payments in corporate records is a crime. It's typically a misdemeanor, but it's a felony if the business records were intended to obscure a second crime. And in this case, the second crime appears to be the use of funds to advance um, his like presidential campaign, which was in violation of campaign finance laws. So the core crime that makes the misdemeanor a felony is the fact that he was doing this um, in order to advance his presidential campaign and thus like the payments that he was making um, were basically counted as part of like the limited amount of money you can spend, you know, financing your campaign. And he violated that, right? That's that's the gist of it, as I understand, like what's actually being argued here. Yeah, that seems to be about the sides of it. Um, just for people who aren't familiar, Bragg is Alvin Bragg, right? The uh, Yeah, Manhattan York- DA. Manhattan yeah. DA, okay, yeah. yeah. What's really concerning about this is that if they can arrest Trump, that means they can arrest any one of us. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) All all the money that I've paid for people to hush up stories about (laughs) me, including Stormy Daniels, you know? Um, Yeah. No, it's... um, I, like people, there's a lot of talk about like, is this a weak case or a strong case? Um, None of us are lawyers. My, my, I, I go kind of both ways about this. One of them is that Alvin Bragg is a guy who, you know, whatever he believes about this case is also a prosecutor that is a political position. Prosecuting someone and failing to get your man is bad for your career. And if that man is the president who you indict for the first time in living memory, (laughs) that would be really bad for your career. So my assumption is that Bragg, at least, believes he's got a really strong case. Um, Otherwise, he because this is a tremendous risk for him, right? Now, obviously, can Trump wriggle his way out of it? Well, Trump is extremely good at wriggling his way out of things, and he has all of the money in the world for lawyers. So I, I think it would be foolish to say it's a slam dunk either way. People who are saying that, like, this is a weird thing to prosecute him for, I guess. But, you know, it does... I, I, I can see the logic that this guy that Bragg is kind of going with. And it's do I think this should be a felony? Um, I guess I I don't care as long as it, it does some damage to the man and causes him some like 
consternation, which is like the question, right? Is this actually going to harm him? But yeah, like, I think that is the more debatable question, right? Like, is it going to yeah. harm him or help him? There's there's a lot of talk about is this a political prosecution? And my general response to that is, well, like nearly all prosecutions are political, right? Yeah. Like even something that wouldn't seem like like a decision to go after a rapist. Um, well, most rapists are not actually ever like charged or brought through the justice system. So if you're a prosecutor choosing to do that in a specific case, there's a degree of politics factoring into your decision, even if it's just as simple as like, if I take on this case and I lose it, it could harm my ability to like move forward in the ways that I want to in my career. So I, the fact that now this is political in perhaps a grander sense, I have no doubt that the fact that this is Donald fucking Trump and everything that's happened since 2020 has happened, that he has, uh, he has been a party. And I have no doubt that that all factors into this. Um, but I, I just don't see that as being like the fact that finally a prosecutor is, uh, is making sort of a political prosecution of a man at the top of the hierarchy is not something that concerns me terribly. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think like, I don't, I, I'm more concerned that this seems to have propelled him to the front of the Republican race and that, he's getting a bunch of donations off it than I am about any any potential consequences like of yeah. the actual indictment. It is certainly an interesting political move for DeSantis to back Trump on this and not com- not like uh, comply with extradition. Not that it would ever get to that point, but that no. is still a move that DeSantis made on purpose, which is an interesting yeah. political move considering yeah. his uh, future candidacy. And it is... Let's talk about that a second, because obviously 34 felony counts sounds like a lot. That is, in fact, quite a few felonies. Um, But the at least the coverage I'm reading is like it's basically unheard of for someone to actually do jail time for this as a first offense, which I don't know, whatever. Like, (laughs) does that man not? It's absolutely (laughs) breathtaking that he doesn't have a single crime on him, given that he's essentially a career criminal. Well, there there are continuing like there's like the potential for prosecution still from like that call he had with the um, Secretary of State of, yeah. uh, of uh, Georgia, which we'll talk about a little bit yeah, later. Yeah, I think there are a few sort of more serious- There's a number of cases. things yeah. that he- Yeah. yeah. It, th- this may not be the last Trump criminal indictment that we see. Um, oh God, we can we, we can only hope. We can only hope. <laughs> because because it, it only gets more funny from here, and that's the only reason to hope. Yeah, well, well unless it doesn't. I'm seeing a lot of like panic from some people, certain certain folks in the progressive and kind of center left media sphere who were like, this has just handed Trump the nomination. This might have just handed Trump the election um, from what I'm looking at and from the polling I'm looking at. I mean, it, I think there's a good chance this helps. I mean, I think the polling certainly supports the argument that this will help him cinch the nomination. I don't really think that was super in doubt before, um, although he has definitely gained on DeSantis since all mm-hmm. of this this whole process started. Um, there is evidence. I'm looking at a 538 article right now. Trump's indictment might be making oh, him dear. more popular among Republicans. But kind of the point that's actually made is that the group that's 
that's getting more likely to back him is his base. Yeah. Like maybe it's yeah. people who were softer on him because he didn't back, you know, the J6 people. Maybe some of them are just folks who kind of drifted away because, you know, it's the years in between a presidential election and that's a natural thing. So it may have galvanized his base. He's certainly, he's raised four or five million dollars. He's claiming people, seven now. He's claiming seven. I mean, that he's seems claimed, real possible. Yeah. Um, he, he is saying that a significant chunk of it, I think like 20% might be more than that now, were like first time donations. That is what his people are claiming that is not, I, I have no way of knowing if those numbers are legitimate. Um, what we can say is that the polling that we're seeing nationally does not back the idea that this is causing a sea change in the likelihood of Americans to support Donald Trump. Um, about 69% of Americans, according to a very nice, according to an economist, YouGov poll, uh, say that in general, failing to report having spent campaign money on payments in order to keep someone silent about an issue to affect and affect the outcome of an election is a crime. Uh, about 90% of Biden, Biden voters back this, while about 54% of those who voted for Trump in 2020 said the same, um, which is interesting. Now, that doesn't mean they also think that this is what Trump did, right? They're just saying they think that that is a crime. Um, about 57% of Republicans, according to that same, or according to a Yahoo News YouGov poll, about 57% of Republicans and Republican leaners said they would support Trump in a head-to-head -head, uh, against Ron DeSantis, who received 31%. Um, that's an increase in support uh, for the president by about 10%. But DeSantis has only gone down by like 8%. So you can see, like, he basically what's happening is that this is causing people to flock from DeSantis to him, um, which is not kind of evidence that we're seeing like a broader national sweep. Uh, a Quinnipiac University, NPR, PBS NewsHour, Marist poll um, kind of broadly supported the idea that investigations uh, into Trump are popular among Americans, uh, more popular than not, at least. Uh, about 56% of Americans say the investigations into Trump are fair. About 41% say they're a witch hunt. Uh, independents are pretty split on the issue, but obviously, like, Democrats wildly supportive, Republicans very much against. Most college-educated adults come down on this being fair, as do most Gen Z and millennial people. Uh, adults without a college education, white evangelicals, and those in small towns are most likely to call it a witch hunt. Uh, an NPR, PBS, NewsHour, Marist poll shows a plurality of Americans, 46%, believe Trump has done something illegal related to those investigations. Uh, a number, another 29% say Trump has done something unethical but not illegal, while only 23% say he's done nothing wrong. Uh, overall, 57% of Americans say that criminal charges filed against Trump should disqualify him from a presidential bid. 38% say it should not. That would be an area where I actually agree with the Republicans. I don't think that having charges against you should disqualify you from running for president. Look, man, I think if you are a fucking murderer, you should be able to run for president. Yeah. People have the right to run for and vote for whoever the fuck they want. And I think that that is a, a strong core belief of mine. Um, not going to vote for Trump, but I think the fact that he's getting charged with a bunch of felonies should not. If he was in jail, he should be able to run as people have in the past, in my opinion. Yeah, Eugene Debs.
famous yeah. Trump, Trump president. And I'm kind of more interested, actually, in... I think the Republican response is fairly predictable. Like, all of this, we, we could have called that, you know, the moment they said they were indicting him. The Democrats, like, I, I'm... Uh, look, I don't think the Democrats are ever going to do anything useful that will really change material conditions or, or, or make things much better for working people in this country. But the fact that it gives them the option to pivot back to, like, orange man bad... Mm-hmm. as their only campaign, as their only promise, as as their only sort of uh, principle, which like they 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 put forward as as a reason to vote for them, it is still bad. I think like it prevents even the modicum of accountability that we have for the, the, all the shit that the Democrats have done and all and all the shit that they haven't done in the past what like three two two and a half years since the election. I think that's so much broader of a problem than just dealing yeah. with with this set of charges. I am I am sympathetic to the idea, if you just kind of look at history, that you can't let people do the kind of shit Trump did and not try to fucking go after them and not hammer the sons of bitches, right? And this is this is not, you know, they went after after the beer hall putsch, Hitler was jailed for like a year. So it doesn't mean that like slaps on the wrist uh don't necessarily have much of a protective effect. But I don't know. Like like, like I I am so torn on this. I mean, obviously it's really funny. Um I think it it if this is kind of the start of a series of prosecutions that's going to make this guy's life hell and that might actually even force some consequences for him, then I think that's broadly speaking a good thing as long as it doesn't like disqualify him from the presidency, which I think would be a bad precedent. But I don't know. I, I'm broadly on on team. Yeah, man, fuck him up. Like we know this guy would have, and in fact, has 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 promised to, if he gets into power again, use the state, use the Justice Department, uh, remake it in his own image, and destroy his enemies. Um, so I'm I'm not against the idea that like, well, the Dims. I, I I tend to agree with you on most things, James. Like, I don't believe the Dim Democratic Party deserves to have an easy election right now um, because they've failed. I mean, we, we, we're, this is the week where we're getting the announcement from Biden that he's essentially taking kind of the soft answer to the GOP attack on trans people participating in sporting events. We were also about a week out from his most recent announcement on, or maybe actually it's been more like a couple of weeks, on the border shit. Um, we just had that horrible fire over uh, in Juarez like a week or so ago. Like the Biden administration has let a, a, a lot of people down in a number of ways. There's, you know, some of the drilling shit that's about to start up again. And Alaska is really unsettling to me. So I I agree with you. I don't like the idea that they can make this be an orange man bad election again. And I'm, I'm hopeful that some of what we've seen, you know, particularly like the, the most recent election in Chicago, you know, maybe maybe there's kind of at least room at the state level for a lot more progressives to edge out kind of centrist dims um, and force some consequences that way. But I, I also am worried about, you know, this, this authoritarian who threatened to jail and murder a bunch of people I care about. Uh, And (laughs) like, I, I want, I want him to spend the rest of his life tangled up in that shit. Uh, I don't know that that's what this is going to be. You know, maybe they'll they'll fail miserably here. Um, but 
uh, I don't know. I do think the kind of panic that you're getting from some people that like this handed them the election. I'm not seeing evidence that that's the case. I think that maybe if this had happened in like 2016 or even 2020, sure, you you might get something like that. But at, at, at the point we're at now, I just don't think new people are coming to Trump in numbers. Yeah. Yeah. No, think- and, 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 it, and it very much makes sense for the liberal state apparatus to try to defend itself from what it sees as like an insurgent reactionary uh, mm-hmm. factor, right? Like that's, that, is, that is how they view Trump and Trump's political power. So it makes sense they will use their own powers to try to resist that from gaining control again. Um, whether or not you believe the state apparatus should exist at all or how, how valid you view its existence, it makes sense what they're doing. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I am, I mean, honestly, I am surprised they committed to it because there is, in, in part because this is a tremendous risk for Bragg and the people around him, right? If this, if this fails, which it very well might, you know, obviously that would have, could have consequences for everybody, but, you know, it could have really serious career consequences for this guy. And I am surprised that you've you've got someone willing to kind of throw the dice here. And I'm hopeful that maybe that inspires, especially since this case, by the way, since I'm sure people are curious, no one I've looked at who knows more about the law than me expects this to hit trial quickly. Again, Trump has all of the money in the world, and this is all, like probably going to be a pretty winding process outside of just the normal problems of like a rich man is being accused of a series of crimes and has many lawyers. The Secret Service has a lot to say and when and how the actual trial part of this commences, and that has a chance of extending it. So my hope is that as this kind of winds on, Maybe the fact that Bragg was willing to kind of take a shot in the dark here, so to speak, inspires some of these other prosecutors who have been, you know, poking at Trump to take a swing. And maybe with enough swings, you know, it'll be like that uh, that guy we had on, Troy Herdebees, uh and his bear armor suit. You know, you get a bunch of bikers to surround him with two by fours <laughs> and just swing until they're all broken and he's on the ground. Um It'll be, like, <laughs> it'll be like that scene from Avengers Endgame and all of the George Soros DAs are going to come in through the garrison, portals. Garrison, <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> Led by George Soros I, I have never been angrier at you right now than bringing up that fucking Avengers scene. <laughs> um, yeah, so did y'all watch Trump's video response? Oh, the one that played on all of the news stations except for MSNBC. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, we should talk I, about I, that. I actually did not watch it. No, yet. I attempted to avoid that as well, actually. But um, well, have I you watched subjected it. yourself to that for us, Robert? I, I sure did. And I have a summary of, of the most salient parts. Um, first off, I think that MSNBC made the right call. They kind of summarized what was going on, but like didn't just let him speak, you know, uninterrupted for. I think it was like 15 minutes, something like 20 minutes. Talking um, of interrupted, Robert, would you like to be interrupted by some uh, plugs for goods and services? Ab- absolutely. Yeah, I you, know, you would, buddy. Donald Trump is uh, a master spokesman, um, and mm-hmm. these are master products. Get your gold! We're back! Uh, it's been such a glorious, glorious time. Everyone's, Everybody's really feeling powerful today. Mighty. Uh, anyway, Trump. So I don't know. I watched this fucking thing. I guess my overall 
sentiment would be kind of boring, right? This is not the level of energy or the the degree of kind of like manic, violent undercurrents that like his uh, his American Carnage speech had, um, or even that like some of his more recent. Uh, speeches in front of crowds have had. I don't see I there's so many people I've watched have takes on this who are like and uh, that one of the joys of Twitter is you'll see some guy who's I don't know, an analyst at some newspaper be like, "Wow, Trump was really low energy. He seems frightened, you know, I'm telling you this is a scared man. He's worried about these charges." And then like someone else with almost the same CV at a different place will be like, "Wow, Trump seems angry, you know. He's about to he's about to lash back. Everybody better be ready for his counter strike." And <laughs> I, honestly, I just thought it was like kind of perfunctory. Um, he, it didn't, he certainly didn't seem low energy, but he didn't seem like he had, he didn't seem like he had much to say other than kind of meander over some of his, some, some talking points that are at this point, mostly pretty lukewarm. Um, he kind of runs through at the start of this, a, a laundry list of right-wing talking points that like the Democrats spied on his campaign in 2016, Uh that he was subjected to fraudulent investigations from the Russia and Ukraine stuff to the impeachments, to the raid on Mar-a-Lago. And then he broadens it by talking about how the FBI and the DOJ relentlessly pursue Republicans. And I was kind of expecting him to lean more into the, I am your vengeance shit that he's been doing lately. He doesn't really as much as I had expected him to in this. Like you can, he kind of like dips his toes into it, but I think he's so focused on what's happening to him that he doesn't, he doesn't like push that as much as I was kind of expecting. So this is what comes after him, like ranting about the DOJ and the FBI relentlessly pursuing Republicans. He then kind of like goes into the election fraud claim stuff again. He gives a bunch of lies there about uh, the election Shocking. and about there being like ballots stuffed and all that kind of shit. Then he like pivots straight from that to talking about how Twitter purportedly worked with the Biden family to hide information about Hunter Biden. This is like debunked Twitter file I shit. Just, yeah, um, yeah. Update on I the mean, Twitter files. Matt Tabibi has just left Twitter because yeah. it won't let him post Substack. Substack. We do know, yeah. obviously, like they did stuff like say, hey, please remove this video that shows Hunter Biden's penis. Um, yeah. But also, like, that's not, number one, is not supposed to be stuff that's on Twitter. That's kind of like crossing the revenge porn line. Um, And, you know, both sides made requests that things be removed. Um, Trump claims, and I'm not sure where he says that there's like, uh, like somebody calculated this, but I haven't been able to find who made this calculation, that if Twitter hadn't intervened against him, he would have won the national election by 17 points. Um, (laughs) And then he's like, and that's, I didn't even need that many. You know, you could have dropped that by 16.8 and I still would have won, which is not true, really. Uh, Again, it's all just lies. Um, It goes on, he compares the United States to a third world country because of the 2020 election. Uh, He calls Alvin Bragg a Soros-backed prosecutor, which he does a lot. Um, It's not true, uh, but Bragg, you know, people are using Soros-backed as like, um, at least a lot of the Nazis are are really leaping on that one. Yeah, they've gone back to Soros. Like, yeah, uh, they they did the three parentheses for a while. Like, um, DeSantis mentioned Soros at least twice in his thing. Yeah, yeah, it's a big, big one for them. Um, I mean, I think it is. It is. It is a a good move on their part to frame this prosecution as 
election interference. Like that is yeah. that is a smart move for them to to get to funnel all yes. of this via that narrative. Yeah, it, it helps keep the election fraud lies uh, lies going. It also helps because there's been a number of like you know Chesa Budin get, who got booted in San Francisco recently is one example. But we've seen a number of like progressive prosecutors get elected by kind of dim and you know center left coalitions, and that's um, allows them to kind of connect this to one of their more successful talking points, which is the purported like horrible violence in the streets of cities like San Francisco and whatnot, the like surging crime and liberal, you know, cities with liberal prosecutors. Again, it's all bullshit, but it's not a bad tactic for tying into like, well, let's make a link between this thing Trump is claiming that's hurting him and this thing that people see every night on like Fox News that has been a pretty durable uh, uh, talking point for the right for several years now. Um, Trump makes it, there's a weird line in here where he says that like even the rhinos and the Democrats agree that the case against him is bad. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, I, I suspect he's just kind of like looking at at, at Twitter chaff there. Um mm-hmm. He then kind of derails a bit by talking about Afghanistan and all of the military equipment and lives lost uh, in the same breath. And uh, then from that, he kind of – one of the things that comes up over and over in this is him talking about how embarrassing this time is for our country, how all of our enemies are laughing at us, et cetera. Like that is a uh, – I mean he's been making that point for a long time, but it definitely it's, – it's one of those things I think – is a little bit of a window into the man's thought process because yeah. he clearly thinks, and and perhaps, I mean, it, it must have a degree of, of resonance with his base, but the idea that like America has been uh, embarrassed because he's facing charges and because of, you know, Biden's failures as he sees it over in Afghanistan and elsewhere, like embarrassment is a big thing he tries to get across in this that like, uh, you know, Lady Lady Liberty's been caught with their fucking skirt up or something like that. It's a, uh, I don't know. It's interesting to me that that's such a focus for him. Um, there's a couple of fun lines in the part about the military. He talks about how it's woke at the top, but under him, it was able to defeat ISIS in four weeks, which man, it took years. Like we know it took yeah. years. I was, I was there for some of it. it a l- large part of that was not Americans at all, but like, no, no. And a large people. part of it was not Americans at all. There's a weird moment where he talks about the investigation over his call with Zelensky, and then that call where he tried to force Georgia's Secretary of State to discard votes that he's being investigated for, where he's like, this is one of like the most beautiful Trump moments of the whole speech, because he's like, you know, that perfect call I had with Zelensky, I told you all it was a perfect call, where my call with, with Georgia's Secretary of State was even more perfect. It was it was the best <laughs> call anybody's ever had. Nobody yeah. had a problem with it. Lots of guys were listening in, and they all thought it was great. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> He, he can be such shit. a funny man. <laughs> it's not even insane. It's just like, I don't know. Nobody nobody else talks like that. Nobody else describes yes. a phone call as perfect, right? Like a, a normal yeah. person. And this is maybe there's a degree of Trump's success you can see in this. But like no normal person being accused of like having attempted to interfere with an election during a phone call would describe the call as perfect. You know, a normal politician would refute the claims against them would say, you know, I never did this. I never did that. You know, this is uh, um, taken out of context or whatever. Trump's just like, it was perfect. 
But you, you don't remember the last perfect call I told you about that people thought might have been a crime? Even more perfect. This is the 110%. most perfect phone call anyone's ever had. Yeah. Uh, then we get a long derailment about the Biden, like, you know, the classified document shit that got him raided. He talks about how Biden's possession of classified documents was like the worst that anyone's ever done and was criminal because he was just the vice president. But the president's allowed to do it. But everybody does it. But the way Biden did is the worst that anybody did it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, I don't know. It, it's there, there's it's not like it's not an interesting Trump speech. Um, I don't think he's like panicked or anything. I just kind of, I don't know. It, maybe he's just sort of like checking off a thing on the to-do box. But it's not. It's not one of the. It's not one for the speech books, right? Or for the history books. I don't know the speech books. That's not a. <laughs> that's not, not a, a thing. term. <laughs> that's not a thing at all. There is a really fun moment where he's like kind of late in the speech, in between him complaining about Letitia James. He like points to his sons and he's like, "I got two great sons. Sons both doing really great." And then he's like, <laughs> "And Baron." And then as an afterthought, he's like, "Baron's gonna do a great job too someday. He's tall." <laughs> Amazing. What an amazing father. Talking of tall, did you see that they'd also they faked a mugshot of him and made him six foot five? <laughs> Who faked <laughs> the mugshot? The Trump campaign faked a mugshot of him to sell merch. Uh, yeah. Based. And then just uh, added like several inches to his a man with no insecurities. Mm -hmm. Ben Shapiro moments. Trump a legalist arc. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying there's nothing to be concerned about in the right-wing reaction here, it is worth kind of looking at the response that has occurred has largely been fucking nonsense circus shit, right? At most of the big rallies, particularly in New York, that have happened as a result of this, there have been more press on the ground than anyone on either side of things. Yeah. Um, it's not, it's just so far not, pulling people out, you know, do I think there's a chance of, you know, isolated terrorist attacks uh, as, you know, by people who are, see themselves as defending Trump or or democracy or whatever? Certainly not a zero percent chance, but in terms of like things that I think are likely to have a mass destabilizing effect, I'm not seeing it yet. And I think a lot of that's due just to the fact that the Trump supporters who are kind of have the highest potential of being convinced to do that shit are all scared as hell, both of the feds and of each other. Um, the sheer number of them that have like turned on each other during the J sixth investigations, like has, it means that whenever there's talk about doing another big series of rallies, it devolves in a lot of these online places into like, well, you know, this is probably being set up by the feds. This is probably a honeypot to trap us. Um, which is, I don't know. It's not a situation I would say you should rely on lasting forever, but that does kind of seem to be where we are right now. One other aspect of the right wing response that I think is worth mentioning is they have is some of some of their like uh, propagandists and and political people have made the promise that since since now since that now there has been a precedent set for indicting former former oh, yeah. presidents now now they finally are able to go after. <laughs> d democratic politicians whenever they want and yeah i i just i just uh am, am worried that they're gonna threaten us with a good time yeah <laughs> yeah and it's it's also like uh, 
it's not just threatening us with a good time because we have seen in Tennessee right now, they're forcing yeah, two Democratic legislators out for their support of, of gun control. And like, you know, specifically two I, black I Democratic legislators, yeah, two black not Democratic legislators. Shit. I, I, I'm not, you know, in line with most of the Democratic Party on gun control. But what is happening here is anti-democratic bullshit like that is it is authoritarian. Yeah. It is completely fucking unacceptable. And people ought to be out in the like a lot more ought to be done. And I think probably a lot more like I don't this. Th- th- that's one of the thorny questions that actually does concern me. Like, what do you do in a situation like this? What do the what kind of leverage do the the feds even potentially have? It certainly doesn't look like they're in the mood to do anything now, because I think that's the kind of that's the kind of thing we're going to see a lot more of in yeah. red states um, in order yeah, to that erode is what little resistance it lists. And that's really concerning. To they're me. not going like, to yeah. go after someone like Obama, which, frankly, somebody somebody should <laughs> for the amount of bad. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah there should be charges but, against the man. There should be charges against Bush, uh, uh, you know, the dubs. Yes. Um, there should be some charges against Clinton. Fuck it. Go, go after them all, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You won't find <laughs> Dig up George H.W. Bush. Put him on trial as a corpse like that one pope. Like, I'm on board. <laughs> but no, they're, they're going to they're gonna end up going after just, like, small, like, minority politicians who are, like, yeah. fighting yes. for, like, reasonable things, you know? It, and who are doing things to actually jam up the works of kind of the march of far-right yeah, um, like that authoritarian laws um, in red states. Exactly. And, Nebraska. you know, I, I am sure that as that picks up pace, they will point out what's being done to Trump as a justification. But like people should be aware that's not why they're doing it. They're doing it because it looks like it's going to work for them in Tennessee. And they did it in Tennessee for th- reasons that had nothing to do with fucking Trump. Yeah. Um. Right. Yeah. yeah. But if you want to talk about like what, fascism is a big part of it is that weaponizing of the state apparatus right yes. against opposition against your mm-hmm. whatever your scapegoat group and like it, that does concern me for people living in in red states like, absolutely absolutely i'm not saying there's nothing to be worried about no, no, from the right i'm just saying I, yeah at the moment when i'm looking at like the way i kind of conceive of a threat matrix i don't see us in a more dangerous position as a result mm-hmm. of trump getting charged and i think an We'd- argument could be made that it's a positive move I really hope we get another nail gun guy. <laughs> oh man, yeah, that fucking dude who tried to yeah, yeah. who tried to solo the FBI yeah. with a nail gun. <laughs> yeah. Maybe the next guy will come in with like a jigsaw or a uh, yeah. Know, no, no, no. Guy. I think I think ladders. I think it's 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 time for like a ladder mob. Um, <laughs> that that's that's what I'm excited to see. Ladders and like simple pulleys. It's <laughs> getting pinned to a building with someone twenty feet away with a ladder. <laughs> Make a make a trebuchet, Judge. It's a, the the gauntlet has been thrown down. Yeah, let's 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 have a continuing series of competitions to see who can build like the most effective medieval siege equipment. I want to see some fucking scorpions up on the hill. You know? <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna do. Is it Greek fire, Turkish fire? When you pour yeah yeah. I mean that really people? that's a de- oh, boy. That's like the hummus debate, James. You don't want <laughs> yeah, you don't yeah, want to yeah, land yeah. on one. Let's side just call the other it there. Cyprus fire, and we can be <laughs> fine. Yeah. Um, I don't know where where we, 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 you guys get any other thoughts on the Trump arraignment, indictment, arrest, etc. Uh, no, it is very funny. I did enjoy seeing that guy fall off his tall bike. That was a highlight of the week for me. Yeah, there was a good video from the uh, the New York protest of a mm-hmm. guy falling off a tall bike. Yeah, shout out to the skateboard. 
Oh, yeah. I will. I will. Um, let's see. I will send send a, a few things to the chat, the this the signal chat that I feel like our people are worth seeing. This I is what wait. I spent. This is what I spent most of my day uh, doing. Um, is is sending people these memes. I think it's important that is that is that, is that Ruth Bader Ginsburg with the biggie crown saying, "Tell Donald I want him to know it was me, Garrison." Yes, that is. <laughs> oh yes. no, you're joking. <laughs> I, I if I if I actually see Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for fuck's sake, <laughs> now that Garrison. would be an urukai with a pussy hat. Uh, oh god, <laughs> looks like brunch is back on the menu, boys. That one I do appreciate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, was, there was there was a good one that was like um uh it was like the jailer dropping off trump in epstein's cell all all of all of all of the lights go off and then from the corner a man in a dark cloak says brandon sends his regards <laughs> uh, what, a, what a what a wonderful time for memes well everybody <laughs> when that's our that's our episode on the Trump arrest. We figured we should we should talk about that uh, to answer the question that so many people ask me: Are we closer to having a civil war? I don't know, man. It doesn't it doesn't feel like this this has moved the needle on that at all. Um, the, the national it, divorce is happening the, any day now. Yeah. Any day now, I swear. <laughs> like I, I I think the thing that's worrying right now is you know not just kind of the low level series of exchanges of uh, of terror attacks and shootings and murders and stuff and just street violence that I I do think is going to kind of continue to be a problem up through 2024, but also just like what we've been talking about in terms of red states pushing for these increasingly really violent laws aimed at doing direct physical harm to small groups of people that they consider to be their enemies for whatever reason of identity. Um, that is like the increasing criminalization of groups of people in red states, the the flight of folks from those states, the the like the the fact that you are kind of seeing the country settle into two blocks that have wildly different legal systems that are often opposed to each mm-hmm. other. That's a conflict that is is absolutely happening. There's no denying that it's occurring. This is not a debatable thing. And I don't see the feds having any idea of how to fix this at the moment. Um, we'll see where the elections go in 2024. The fact that Wisconsin, um, mm-hmm, that their their Supreme Court election went well means a lot. It means that that's one state where the the process that we're seeing happening in places like Florida and Tennessee, um, that is a significant amount of people protected from that. And it also means a lot for the 2024 election. But it's we 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 are in a really rough place still um i'm not like yeah. thinking we're in at the edge of 1776.2 or whatever the fuck the right calls it these days yeah 1865 yeah. or whatever yeah. robert evans is going to personally be the, the next john brown i yeah i i hopefully not um <laughs> but uh i am i am i think i'd be really good at uh uh being a terrible farmer um i i How's i'm your already beard? Yeah, eh, eh, eh. You know <laughs> that picture of John Brown like leading the troops will remain one of my favorite pieces oh, of yeah. art that I've ever no, seen. No, no, he's he's got he's got a hell of a beard in that one. Yeah, I don't know. I I think the the threat you know continues, but uh, broadly speaking, 
what's happened to Trump is either good uh, or neutral, but certainly funny. And that's, I think, a good point to end on for the day. Great. Brandon sends his regards. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Okay, everything's recording. My, my cat is grooming herself, so now's the time. Now's the time. Yep. Okay, great. <laughs> we should just use that as our intro. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> I mean, I'm fine with that. Whatever. Okay, let's do it. That's our intro. That's uh, the intro. Shireen's cool. cat is grooming herself, and yep. that means that this is it could happen here. Uh, and um, I am James Stout, and I'm joined by Shireen Eunice. Yes, and not not her cat. Who's... She's just she's just rowdy, and I have to really sometimes plan recording times around her schedule, and okay. it's that's just good. the way my life is now, and that's yeah. Fine. That's the attention she deserves. Yes, exactly. None of this is as important as your cat. But it's a bit of a serious one, sadly. Yes. Um, so I want to talk more again about the border, something we've spoken about a little bit um, and something I kind of want to keep coming back to because things haven't really got any better. In fact, they've potentially got worse. So where I want to start is last month, and um, we're recording this on what, the 4th of April, so mm-hmm. uh, just over a week ago, I think. A fire and detention. The 28th, was it? Okay, yeah, what's that? Three, yeah, a week ago. A week mm-hmm. ago today. 
A fire in a detention centre in Ciudad Juarez killed 41 migrants being detained there. More than two dozen other people were seriously injured, and every single one of the about 100 people detained in the um, migrant detention centre was hurt in the fire. The reason that every single person was hurt um, became clear in a video obtained by Texas Public Radio uh, and later confirmed by the government in Mexico. It shows two people dressed as guards rushing to the camera frame. You can see people in the cells desperately pulling and kicking and beating on the bars. Uh, mm -hmm. The guards sort of run up to the doors, but they don't really appear to make any effort to open them or to let the people out of the cells. Instead, they hurry away as clouds of smoke begin to fill the corners of the cells. Gradually, the smoke fills up the whole screen until you can't see anything else, and the men in the cells are left to die. Hmm. It's, it's horrifying. Yeah, it, it's one of the worst deaths that's available to a human being, and, and the fact that people who are already incredibly desperate and have taken huge risks to get there and died like literally yards from the United States mm -hmm. border it is just, it's almost kind of unfathomably cruel. But what is in a way crueler is this statement made by the US ambassador to Mexico, Ken Salazar. He said the tragedy illustrated the dangerous rifts in traveling north. And he cited the loss of life in two recent smuggling incidents in San Antonio and in the southern Mexican state of Chiapas. These cases, he said, are a reminder of the risks of irregular migration. But what we're talking about here isn't a consequence of irregular migration, really, right? Because these people weren't in the hands of criminals or mm -hmm. coyotes or cartels. Uh, they were in the hands of the Mexican government when they yeah. died. Uh, and, and for him to blame this on irregular migration, I think, is, is very indicative of the way the Biden administration has approached migration policy, which is to to try and always obfuscate and shirk the responsibility for the cruel things that it's doing, for the consequences of its policies and its actions, um, which I want to get into more. I don't want to linger on this fire too much because, A, it, it's unfathomably awful. Uh, and, like, I, I, don't think it, I don't think we need to spend hours and hours, like, going over something for, for people to know that, mm -hmm. like, there is no situation in which the government should burn fucking 40 people alive. Mm -hmm. uh, that, like... Um, it, it's inexcusable. Um, we know that, like, it was the shelter was set up in 2019, uh, and I want to get into why this shelter, that which seems to have been a pretty terrible condition to begin with, was set up in 2019. Why people who came to the United States to try and have a better life, a safer life, ended up in a shelter in Mexico, and how we've created a system where people keep dying at our southern border, mm -hmm. right? Some of this will be stuff we've covered before. If people have listened to the other stuff I've done on the border, if people have listened to the butterfly sanctuary episodes, they'll be familiar with some of Biden's border policies. But I wanted to address these. Did you see that they lowered the death toll from 40 to 38, I guess, after hospital visits? Like, that's the one part that I've read that is nice so far. Is that but that's two nice. People have yeah, survived. that is good. I've seen 38, 39, and 41. I wasn't sure what. The yeah. exact so thirty eight is the newest. Right one. now, I'm reading thirty eight. After it was on, it was forty, and it was lowered to yeah. thirty eight. Okay, yeah. wow, two people were reanimated. Yeah, um, I mean, it's I mean, it's yeah. just like they're probably in terrible condition. Like they're yeah, probably yeah. going, they're having like life changing, if not like all like it's just terrible. No, yeah, um, and like access to care for those people. I mm -hmm. mean, those people may have access to care, right? Because what happened was high profile and it was in the news. But like generally, access to care for people, like I have seen, 
I, like, I've seen a person die because they don't have access to their medicines that, that are very cheap and very easily mm-hmm. available. Um, like, again, like, we're talking feet. Like, I could throw a tennis ball into the United States from where it was standing. Yeah. Uh, and that's because the system treats people like numbers, not people. Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, the migration center is like a, a like a big jail. You know what I mean? It doesn't even. I don't yeah, know. I, it's like an old timey fucking Western jail with people yeah. crammed into cells um, with with you know like legit bars on the walls. Mm-hmm. So shelter conditions in Mexican detention are often very poor, and those conditions have been exacerbated by something called Title Forty Two. People have probably heard about Title Forty Two a lot. There's a lot to say about Title 42, but very briefly, it's a Trump-era public health policy that invokes a public health rule to push asylum seekers out of the US and into Mexico, regardless of whether or not they might legally qualify for asylum. This shelter was stood up as a consequence of something called the Migrant Protection Protocol. Um, people call it the Migrant Persecution Protocol because that's more accurate. Right. But um, I was going to say, like, wow, doing a, yeah, a great job with that. <laughs> Yeah, uh, like pe- people enjoy being wrong about George Orwell, but this shit is perfectly Orwellian. Right? Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. To call a policy which kills little fucking children, the migrant protection policy is uh, is dark. Mm-hmm. Um, they call it, It's often called remain in Mexico as well, um, which is what it does. It requires people to remain in Mexico while their asylum claim is processed, despite the fact that this might not be a safe country for them and that this might violate various international laws and conventions... Uh, on asylum, but the US doesn't subscribe to all of those, as we're going to find out. Um, now, Title 42 has been through some legal ping pong recently, right? With, with Biden sort of uh, trying to get rid of it, also defending it in court, a bunch of conservative states suing to keep it. Um, so let's explain a little bit of where we're at with Title 42 right now. Um, it's actually set to expire on May the 11th. Uh, the Biden administration is rolling out plans that will continue to restrict migrant access after May the 11th because they're concerned about like a large influx of migrants, which I just want to point out was always going to fucking happen mm-hmm. when, when you like pushed people just the other side of your fictional line in the sand. And then at some point you're going to have to stop because at some point Mexico is already the third most popular country in the world for asylum mm-hmm. um, and you can't force this all on them. Um so since it was first implemented in 2020, the government has used Title 42 to expel migrants from the US-Mexico border nearly 2.7 million times. Uh, oh. That doesn't mean you will see these statistics quoted constantly, uh, credulously, by people who don't understand what the fuck they're talking about, and it really makes mm. me angry. That doesn't mean 2.7 million people, right? Um, because Title 42 makes people cross more than once. It creates this kind of loop where DHS, right, normally CBP or Border Patrol, sorry, picks people up and dumps them back in Mexico without processing them. And those people are now in a place they don't know. They don't have any family, they don't have any hope, they don't have any money. And all they do is kick their heels until they can find a way to cross again or someone to cross them again. And sometimes people who are facilitating those crossings will offer them unlimited crossings. So they, they'll pay uh, someone to smuggle them across, right? And that person will say, well, you get unlimited crossings. Like I didn't even realize, it was, I, mean, I didn't know it was so um, like standard. They're like, okay, this is going to happen. You're going to get a limited crossing. You know what I mean? Like they're, just, they're expecting it to be this like perpetual loop. 
Yeah, I mean, they a few years ago, maybe they wouldn't have done, but another a way that this is sometimes termed is catch and release, which they're not mm-hmm. fucking fish. Um, you shouldn't do that to fish either. It's not very nice to fish, but... Um, I mean, it's like, dehumanizing. Like, yeah, it's extremely very, fucking yeah. dehumanizing, right? And um, what it does and what I've seen, what I'm not, it's not like a unique insight of mine, is that it forces people to cross in more and more dangerous areas. So, like You combine that with a wall... Um, and the fact that like, it's very well documented that the Trump administration wanted to maximize the amount of miles of wall it built. Um, mm-hmm. If you remember in one of the presidential debates, he made a claim about a certain number of miles of new wall yes. he built. Yes. Yeah, he was just speaking out of his ass. Mm-hmm. Um, I foiled it like the next day and uh, they were like, they, they provide a number of different numbers, all, many of which relied heavily on repairing existing mm-hmm. border fence. Uh, but they just went like hammer and tongs trying to build new sections of wall to include skipping areas where it was harder to build, valleys, mountains, that mm-hmm. kind of thing, right? And so what this wall does is it forces people through the areas where it's hardest to cross. And those are the areas where it's easiest to die. And so these people are now forced to make riskier and riskier crossings to try and avoid getting caught um, or to wait in Mexico where they're at a very high risk of abduction or sexual assault, extortion or violence, right? And we'll come on to maybe a couple of those stories later um, just from people I've talked to. The result of this policy is that border cities in Mexico are flooded with migrants and often with soldiers sent there to supposedly keep the peace. Last month, the Mexican National Guard and the immigration authorities raided a hotel full of Venezuelan migrants in Juarez. Local news outlets reported that the migrants, mostly young men, threw stones at the officials and a brawl ensued, and eventually they called off the raid. In another incident, authorities raided a church and dragged off a number of Venezuelan migrants who had been given sanctuary there. Some were beaten, and one advocate said they were essentially tortured. Whoa. This prompted... Yeah, it's, this is horrific, right? Like, mm-hmm. a, lot of, so a lot of the young men in, in the... Uh, it was all men in, in the um, detention centre that caught fire, and most of them were from Venezuela, right? Yeah. Place like I've lived in Venezuela. I uh, I have a lot of sympathy for those people. Um, and yeah, we actually, I found a like a breakdown. I guess of, of mm-hmm. there was thirteen Hondurians, twelve Salvadorians, twelve Venezuelans, a Colombian, and an Ecuadorian. So I mean, even that's crazy. Like, there's so many people from all of those countries. It's I don't know. Yeah. We'll see a bit later that there are certain um, pathways, like for Venezuelan people, there are some pathways um, that don't exist for other people. Mm. That they're insufficient and they're, they're uh, how do I say this, unfair, uh, but but sort of they exist. But yeah, those people from from those countries, we see a lot of Haitian people at the border here too. Um, but yeah, that, that's a pretty common kind of uh, like border mix-up right. uh, of folks. Um, unfortunately, often... You won't see Haitian folks, uh, that there are sort of segregations even within the migrant community. And often Haitian folks is kind of segregated out, which is, which is unfortunate. Like, I thought the horrors one is kind of that's the population breakdown. Like, wouldn't the Haitian border crossing be like somewhere else? Uh, A dumb thing to say. No, no, no. (laughs) That's not dumb at all. Um, I, I don't know what the breakdown... I know there are Haitian people in Juarez. Um, I know there are a lot of Cuban folks in Juarez too, and they've kind of some of them have stayed in Juarez and, and established kind of their own communities. And that's had some sort of uh, some negative results for anti-migrant feeling in Juarez from what I've heard. Um, I know there are a lot of Haitian folks in Tijuana. Mm. A lot of the Haitian people come f- via Brazil, where they've spent time 
uh, like preparing for the Olympics that were there uh, and building stadium and stuff. So a lot of them tell me they've come up from Brazil. And then obviously with like increased violence in Haiti now, uh, you'll see more Haitian people again. There's a decent Haitian community that also is established in Tijuana and has its they, that it's their home now, right? Oh, like, I had no idea, to be honest. So now I know. I, I'll, I'll accept being a little bit dumb so everyone can learn. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. No, it's, it's not very well reported on. Um, and I think it's... I, honestly, people have stopped reporting on it since 2020 as well. Like, since, mm. like, Orange Man Bad stopped being, like, the right. prevailing, like, yeah. mass media message. Uh, no one gives a fuck about migrants anymore. Like, there's a pronounced drop-off when I cross... Um, of people and I don't know Pete, there are some very good reporters of course you know we've spoken to some of them in Tijuana and in, in San Diego um, but uh, yeah you just there was a lot of parachute reporting on migration in the Trump era um, some of it very bad um, some of it by people who didn't have the language skills to be working there and didn't understand what was respectful or what wasn't and things like that so like, I have strong feelings about how the migrant caravan in 2018 was was reported on for instance yeah, but yeah, you'll definitely see a ton of Haitian people, and, and the, Biden has gone exceptionally hard. Um, I'll, I'll include a link at the bottom of like a piece I wrote for NBC about Biden's anti-Haitian bullshit. But like, um, exceptionally hard, specifically against the Haitians. Says that you can find a tweet um from the Haitian, the United States Embassy in in Haiti, uh, where it's just got a picture of Biden. I think it it says "Don't come." I'm paraphrasing, oh but it, like it's a, the official account. Yeah, That's yeah, no, so it's funny. wild. Like yeah. you don't see this in other countries either. Even you know they, they've made like they've made um, there's a ton of special exemptions for people from Ukraine, right? It, it's right. hard not to of see course. that shit as racist. Of course, yeah, of course it's Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, right. Because uh, the Which only is country this, it's, it's also yeah. great, but also you have to look at the like why did that happen? Right, and if we can't like express like. Like Russian bombs kill kids in Myanmar too, right? Russian mm-hmm. bombs kill kids all over fucking Africa. Uh, and if we can't have solidarity with them and we can with Ukrainian people, then I'd like it's hard for me not to see that as to do with their skin color. Yeah. And then that is bullshit. Um, so yeah, Title 42 will end in May when the COVID public health emergency order expires. Biden um, said earlier on that he would end Title 42. He then faced these lawsuits from conservative states, but at the same time, the Biden administration fiercely defended Title 42 in litigation brought by the ACLU and other groups challenging the policy. And even the CDC, right, the CDC, Center for Disease Control, was like, no, this shit isn't necessary and it's cool, we, mm-hmm. we should stop. Um, the government has argued that public health concerns for letting migrants into the country due to continued threat of COVID-19 outweigh the possible harms done to migrants who return to cities like Nogales, Ciudad Juarez, or Tijuana. Um, like it's, you don't even need a COVID test to fly into this country now, I don't think, right? Well, like, yeah. if my family come visit me. Um, so the end of the emergency kind of makes that a moot point, right? Like, you can't have a public health order to protect us from a disease, which you're right. saying isn't a problem anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but the damage that this has done will take years to rectify. And the backlog that it's created is already being used as an excuse to do more cruel and inhumane things to, to people who are just looking for a fair crack at life. Shereen, do you know what won't uh, build a wall around itself <laughs> and force people to uh, risk their life to get here? You tell me, James. Well, what is it? It is uh, these silver coins uh, that have Ronald Reagan on them, who oh. probably outflanks our current immigration policy to That's the That's our guy. Yep. Uncle Ron. <laughs> okay, we're back. Uh, 
Thank you, Ronald Reagan. Uh, or maybe it was a gold advert. I hope it was a gold advert because I know that everyone enjoys those so much. <laughs> Please don't message Sophie about the fucking gold things. We know. Yeah, we know. We know. We know. Trust us, we know. <laughs> yeah. It's also, it's just funny. It's funny to me that someone is buying gold adverts and presumably none of our listeners are buying gold and yet I have healthcare now. I mean, it must be working somewhere. Like, you know what I mean? They're, like, why? How else would they afford to keep advertising i don't know yeah I don't <laughs> someone's know. doing uh, something yeah, yeah. it's someone's like one gold. guy it's like yeah, one yeah. guy doing it's like Donald if Trump. you are that steadfast listener who buys everything we yes. advertise like thank I guess, you so much for our yeah, paychecks yeah. we salute your dedication yeah. um Sorry. so biden hasn't really come up with a distinctive immigration policy of his own yet uh, mm-hmm. Mostly, he's just kind of failed to undo the damage Trump has done, created a two-tier system in which white Ukrainians get to slip the line while black and brown migrants wait in terrible conditions. And for some reason, he's gone as hard as fuck as he can to stop Haitians coming here, uh, which the reason might be pretty obvious to some of you. Uh, oh, and we're still building the wall, but we're calling it a barrier now. And of course. So, yeah. yeah, it's totally different. Rebrand. Uh, it's yeah, rebranded. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have a little plate on the top. It's a slightly different shape. Uh you can, like, if you scroll back far enough on my Twitter, you can find comparison pictures of the Biden barrier and the Trump wall. But um, It's like literally it's, just like a glow up, like a, like, a, <laughs> like a terrible, horrifying glow up. Yes. Yeah. The wall's having its little, uh, it's, it's a freedom wall now or something. Mm-hmm. But uh, if, if you don't follow the butterfly sanctuary as well, high value Twitter account, um, sometimes stealing automatic rifles, not stealing, I should say, but uh, National Guard leaving automatic rifles on her property that she takes care of. But yeah, you can listen to our Butterfly Sanctuary episodes for more on like the Biden barrier. But we're more than halfway through Biden's term now, and we're beginning to see him take aim at something resembling a border policy on his own. Uh, At the same time, because we're more than halfway through his term, or perhaps just because he never intended to fulfill his campaign policies about being kind to migrants, he's trying to Move towards the center, and the center of U.S. politics is like somewhere to the right of Attila the Hun these days. So mm-hmm. uh, he's been hit pretty hard by the Republicans on immigration, and it's worth pointing out that he's been hit pretty hard on largely on just shit that's made up or misunderstandings of this the number of of interactions that Border Patrol has, or willful or, or unwillful. I don't know, but um, many of the critiques are in pretty bad faith. But nonetheless, like it's been an area where they've criticized him, right? And so mm-hmm. he's trying to move towards the quote-unquote center on that with these new policies. So he's proposed, or his administration has proposed, something called a transit ban. The transit ban, people might remember, and the, the initial kind of proposal of this was made by Stephen Miller, a uh, dude who looks like a lollipop. And also, like a white nationalist. That's and a great. Uh, he his head is too big for his neck. He's shiny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. That, that's not the only thing that's wrong with him. Uh, <laughs> so, this proposal would render migrants ineligible for U.S. asylum if they cross the southern border illegally after failing to ask for humanitarian refuge in another country they traveled through, such as Mexico. Right. So, unless you somehow come straight to the U.S., which you can't do because you can't get on a flight to the U.S. Um, without the correct travel documents, then you'd have to travel through another country, right? And they're saying that you should apply for asylum there. Uh, In practice, this would bar most non-Mexican asylum seekers unless you took advantage of one of the programs that Biden has proposed to allow people in Nicaragua, Cuba, Haiti, and Venezuela with a US sponsor under a humanitarian parole program where they apply from their home country and then get credentials to travel. 
so they'd stay in in Cuba or whatever, right? Um, now this might not be safe for some people to do in those countries, mm-hmm. um, but they have a a means to get here. It's metered, I think, at thirty thousand a month. Those people from those same countries enduring the same conditions, if they came here on their own and then applied to asylum as is their right under U.S. law once they entered the country, right? And, and it's worth noting that like most people coming in that like want to apply for asylum, so they they will wanted to turn themselves that might have changed a little with title 42 but previously people were seeking to turn themselves in mm-hmm. right and say hey i'm here to apply for asylum they can now be expelled under this legislation right wow. so if they if they don't use this or they don't have a u.s sponsor which kind mm-hmm. of creates you shouldn't have to know someone in america yeah. right to, to come here and avail yourselves of basic human rights yeah it's just it's, it's purposely like getting people out of the, the the group that can go in you know what i mean like it's, it's excluding people but it's yeah. just like yeah, it's just, right. Thousands of people. Yeah. Um, and it, it, this legislation now allows them for them to be for expedited processing and expulsion. Um, if people do want to apply for asylum at the southern border, they need to use an app which is called CBP One. Um, That's just the craziest thing I've heard in a while. Sorry. Yeah, it, it is. <laughs> it's, oh, I'm like, it, I'm on another planet. Like, what? What? I don't know. It is incredibly powerful, like lib brain. Yeah. Uh, to be like, don't worry, we've made the app. Uh, we've got you. Like, it assumes that people have the app. It's not available in all the languages that people speak. In. Like, of course not. Yeah. Like last time I was at the border, like I had, a, I worked with a colleague who spoke a Romo. Uh, I speak French. He spoke Haitian Creole, Spanish, Russian, Ukrainian. Right. Like, like those are people I interviewed in in an, in an afternoon. Uh, you know, there are dozens of languages. Mm. So um, the app isn't available in those languages. The app is a giant clusterfuck. It doesn't work. It crashes all the time. Like you can find like, like little kids, uh, little kids who come up from Tijuana to go to school who like can tell you 10 things that are wrong about this app. Uh, but you can also find people who make six figure salaries in Washington who think it's great. Right. Regardless, it's a fucking app on a fucking device that is just like, like, I don't know. I think it's just so lazy it's lazy and, and stupid i don't like yeah. it yes it is both of those things it assumes people have a cell phone which they yes not. very elitist yes exactly yeah like it may your phone could get stolen um be fucking someone could book all these trying game like there's a million ways it, it assumes you've got fucking broadband connectivity mm-hmm. you know wi-fi all these things it's yeah it's just insane like it, it's amazing how detached one can be from reality and still be the person in charge yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. What if no people in charge? So migrants crossing the border without documents can be subjected to expedited removal, as I said. Um, the proposed regulations indicate that migrants from Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, uh, who generally cannot be deported due to strained relations with the governments there, would face deportation to Mexico instead, um, which fucking just, again, yeah. makes this someone else's problem, yeah. right? Um a dozen Senate, Senate Democrats called the proposed asylum restrictions unlawful and counterproductive. Um, they joined thousands of migrant advocates and organizations, including the United Nations Refugee Agency, in imploring the administration to immediately withdraw the regulation. So it's, there's a period of public comment, which is what's happening right. at the moment, right? So mm-hmm. um, he's found a policy which no one likes, uh, both from the right and from you know the people are allowed to live with dignity side. Right. That's, that's um, hard it, to do. That's hard to do. Well, you're never, he's never going to fucking, imp- like, yeah. I, I don't know what the, like, Tramplicans want, but, like, it's some version of machine guns on top of a wall killing little children. 
Yeah. Uh, and uh, you could just be a decent person or you could try and placate fucking psychopathic Fox News people. So Mexico is already the third most popular destination for people seeking asylum in the world after United States and Germany. Um, in Mexico, asylum seekers have to stay in the state where they apply. And that's resulted in large numbers of people being concentrated in uh, places like Tapachula on the southern border with Guatemala. Um, and, and that creates like an infrastructure issue there, right? Which uh, it's also worth, like, I'm sure people are well aware that, like, I wonder why all these countries have been fucking destabilized, right? I wonder if, exactly, if, there, yeah. if there was a country which helped do that for decades. Why are they and leaving their, their home? Like, why can't they go back home? Like, yeah, that, you know why what I mean? Like, safe there? Yeah. Um, yeah, if only The Clash had written a song about it for us to understand better. And so Mexico granted 61% of asylum requests from January through November last year, compared to 46% in the USA for fiscal year 2022. That is an increase of a low of 27% under Trump, uh, but, it, but it still suggests that more than half the people get sent back, right? And where the fuck do they get sent back to if, if they can't reliably go back to their home country safely? Um, Mexico abides by something called the Cartagena Declaration, which promises a safe haven to anyone threatened by generalized violence, foreign aggression, internal conflicts, massive violation of human rights, or other circumstances which have seriously disturbed public order. The US currently observes a narrow definition that requires a person to have been individually targeted. That's a distinct thing, right? For limited mm -hmm. reasons, as spelled out in the UN Refugee Convention. But... It appears that the Biden administration has plans to retrain DHS agents, and they're currently telling them, or they seem to be proposing to tell them, I should say, to let migrants enter the US to pursue protection only if they qualify under the International Convention Against Torture, which is an absurdly oh high bar, God. right? Oh my God, yeah. Like, Against torture? Wow. Yeah. That's I mean, not the word they're... I thought you were going to say after all of that. No, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, a, it is, it's a ridiculously high bar, like... There are very real things you could be afraid of. Like I've spoken yeah. to people who's have escaped like forced sex work, right? Who've had members of their family killed, mm -hmm. threats made to their own lives. None of those. Maybe the forced sex work is torture, but um, maybe right. some of those things wouldn't meet that bar. But I think any reasonable human being, right? If you met someone in the street and they said, "Hey, so my, you know, so and so killed my daughter and my father and my uncle," and they said they're going to kill me, you'd say, "Like, come into my house. I'll look after you." But there's a country we're saying, "Fuck you. You're on your own." And yeah, that's that's not how you be a good neighbor. Um, a source on the inside of the administration recently has reported that the Biden administration is considering reviving the practice of detaining migrant families caught crossing the U.S.-Mexico border illegally. Um, so this is this is the thing that uh, that that all the people were very upset about with right? the, the no more kids in cages thing. Mm -hmm. But we fucking do that again as well, I yeah. guess. Uh, we, we don't, they they likely won't do uh, like separation. Of minors, which which is what they did before, right? They, they took the kids away from their parents and yeah. detained them separately, which is just fuck it. Like I cannot imagine. Um, it gets I mean, still. It's just yeah, it's just unspeakable trauma and like just like for both for everybody involved. Uh, I mean, like same with the wall though. Like it's just the same thing. We're the same thing is happening. It's just like marketed differently. It's just like packaged in a different way, and it's still fucking terrible. Yeah, like, I just, I, I don't know what you expect these fucking people to do. Like, and I don't know how you, how you expect someone, like, even if you're purely self-interested and you're just concerned about, like, US security and, and like, you know, making America great mm -hmm. again or whatever. Um, like, 
if you lock little children up, like they're going to fucking hate you, and you can't yeah. blame them. Like it, it's 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 inhumane. It's it's what dictators do. It's it's fucking unfathomable. But it also like drives me like just insane to think about people that are actually there in in the flesh like that that see people like like children crying or something and like just there's so much terrible things going on and no one does there's not enough i don't know i just i can't imagine be doing that at least be like okay my job is this and i'm gonna continue i don't know i don't like it i don't like it no i don't like it either like this of all of the things i've reported on and like i've reported on some dark shit uh and, and like being to some dangerous places etc like nothing has been harder for me to get over than little kids at the border um mm -hmm. uh, like i have hundreds of stories about it but i can remember one little girl um this shit makes me want to cry um i remember this one little girl who um she'd left her teddy bear behind she mm -hmm. wanted a teddy bear and uh, like this little girl's like living in a fucking tent right this is in 2018 when um when the, like the midterms were happening so they were holding a large group of people right next to the border right they were staying in a baseball stadium and myself and some friends had gone to help um, and this little girl was just like the sweetest little kid like she came up she was holding my hand um and then i asked if she wanted to go on my shoulders she wanted to go on my shoulders you know and at this point the way that they were getting people to leave that area and go to another area was by cutting off their access to water um, oh my god so, they wanted, so like we were able to get some water and we were able to give them like as much water as we could buy on our credit cards and i asked her like what she wanted and she said she'd had to leave her teddy bear behind and it just fucking broke my heart like mm -hmm. uh without like you know going into too much personal trauma details like that shit kept me from sleeping for weeks uh and uh i found it so hard to come back it was like 2018 around november i guess and like go to like a, i remember someone's having some thanksgiving thing and just uh mm. I just wanted to fucking shout at everyone and be like, what the fuck yeah. is wrong with you? Uh, anyway, so I went and bought her no, a it's, teddy That's devastating. It's especially yeah. from a from a child, you know, like their their experience and their perspective is just like, just, I don't know. You see how raw it is. Yeah, like, I, I know, no, children shouldn't be treated like that full no. stop. Like, we mm -hmm. shouldn't be standing in the parking lot of a fucking Tommy Hilfiger discount store in San Diego launching tear gas at little children. In, in Mexico is is one of the like the images of like what America does to people that will stick with me forever. Um, it's yeah. It's, well, I'm glad it, you yeah. were. I'm glad you were down there helping though. Like especially getting cutting their access off to water is like the most like one of the most inhumane things. But then again, it's all very inhumane. But yeah, yeah. and that time was difficult uh, for everyone involved. I, that was also one of the most impressive. Uh, this is one of the times when large NGOs weren't allowed to operate because of various concerns and legal things. So the entirety of the aid effort for those people was done through mutual aid, right? Through mm -hmm. completely ad hoc mechanisms. There were church people, um, people from various migrant advocacy groups in San Diego, people from El Otro Lado, who we've spoken to on the podcast. That's how I met them for the first time. A number of those people actually were surveilled by Border Patrol. Uh, as we found out two years later wow. uh, and had warrants on them, et cetera. But everyone who came, came like not because it was a job, because it was the right thing to do. And like, there wasn't a day I was down there that there weren't people turning up with trucks full of stuff. Um, wow. This is my friend and I, uh, 
someone managed to get us a projector from their workplace. I don't know how they got a projector from their workplace. I don't care. Uh, and a bunch of DVDs. My friend used to be an electrician mm-hmm. and they moved everyone to a nightclub. Uh, it was a nightclub and another part of Tijuana, at an old nightclub, old and massive. Thousands of people were in this big kind of open air nightclub situation. It was very strange. They had the women and the young children in one area that like very clearly had been a pole dance room. Uh, yeah. So like, anyway, uh, and they had like these bars that were like, you know, like a balcony area. Mm-hmm. So we went up to the balcony area and then me and a couple of these older um, kids who were with the migrant group were able to get like climb across the roof, find some wires, connect a projector um, and uh, do a little, make a little movie theater Aww. for the children. And they, I remember they were watching like Beverly Hills Chihuahua. It's uh, so sweet. When I left, and yeah, they were having like just those little gestures are so important, though. Like it's yeah. I yeah. mean, it doesn't fucking fix anything, but if they can have two hours of watching a film about a dog or whatever, and be yeah. uh, like not Let there them for have a moment. That. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, they deserve that, and they deserve a lot more than that. But yeah, it was those little nice things that made it bearable, I guess. But yeah, there was. I still have like fairly disturbing recollections of lots of things that's another border uh so let's just do a quote from joe biden um because <laughs> we do we do love a bit of joe biden uh my message is this if you're trying to leave cuba nicaragua or haiti have agreed to begin a journey to america do not do not just show up at the border stay where you are and apply legally starting today if you don't apply through the legal process you will not be eligible for this new parole program uh Anyway, Joe Biden could go fuck himself, but uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I think that I hope I hope that obviously lots of my little anecdotes have helped. But we shouldn't see these people as statistics or numbers, and we should see them as people. So I've got a couple of interviews I've done. Um, these are just ones I've went back to some notes and found. So I was just going to read them out. So uh, I won't give their names, just for their own security. And um, yeah. Uh, sometimes I've used pseudonyms when I publish these. Uh, sometimes I have used their names when they're willing to use their names. Like it's 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 their choice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it should always be their choice if you're a fucking reporter and you're filming children without their consent or their parents' consent 100%. in a refugee camp. Yeah, they're not just a spectacle for your, your story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can jog on, and I hope someone throws your camera in a river. Um, <laughs> so uh, here's one: I have three daughters, age 13, 10, and six. I've always had my own business selling food. And I paid what we would call extortion money. But with the pandemic, I couldn't pay what I owe for three or four months. They said if I didn't pay, they would burn down my shop and me and my daughters would be raped and killed. With what little I had left, I left with my daughters. It's hard to get work here. As an immigrant, there are some jobs, but not the sort that are for me. I have to try and be an example to my kids. One day I was juggling by the traffic lights and some guys tried to pick me up. They said they knew where I lived and they would hurt me and my daughters if I didn't work for them. They made me work in a bar. I escaped, but that's how I broke my hand. I didn't want to go to the US, but I need to leave this country now for the same reason I left my own. Um, wow. Then I'll read one more. Uh, we came from Honduras to flee the violence. We have come to this camp in the last few days, but it's scary here. We don't feel safe. There are people coming and taking photos of the children, of the women. Men offer the women here money to go with them. They try to get them to sleep with them. There's a woman here filming us as well. We found out she's a big activist for Donald Trump. This was in 2021. Uh, some people came to snatch a child here. Between the group, we're working to make a security committee to protect the children because there are people who would take the children here. 
We aren't a caravan. We're just people from all over the world who have come here for a better future. We're asking Biden. We know it's complicated and he has a lot to sort out. And we have patience. We know he has to make compromises. But please think of us here. We're in danger. Please give us a solution. It's fucking heartbreaking. Yeah, it is heartbreaking shit. I wish there was like some kind of happy ending uh, I could put on this or like, mm. I don't know. Um, there are great things you can do with mutual aid groups. Um, there's uh, a group that I'm hoping to interview next week called Borderlands Relief Collective in San Diego who do kind of uh, a lot to help people crossing the border. Uh, there are groups like Al Otro Lado who you can donate to. The public comment is still available for the um, Biden's proposed new restrictions. So I guess you can comment on that if, if you think that will help. Um, I guess this is an area sometimes where talking to politicians might help uh, because they make the laws uh, that that affect people's right to kind of live with basic dignity. But yeah, I don't have a great solution to this, especially like if people aren't in a place where they, you know, people here are struggling to get by. I understand that not everyone can afford to donate. Um, of course. Yeah. But yeah, this is pretty bleak. And just because it's not like being beamed into your living rooms anymore, because orange man bad, uh, <laughs> doesn't mean that like, it's still not impossibly cruel. Yeah. It's, I mean, just because another old guy took over, uh, doesn't mean like the, the same things were already there. It's not like they just poofed into thin air, like all the terrible things that were already happening. That's what I don't understand is like people just assume, I don't know what they assume. I'm not going to ramble on like that, but no. it's <laughs> just heartbreaking and you should donate if you can. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Donate, do stuff, shout at people, um, do whatever you think will, will make a difference because it, it's pretty bad. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. 
That's trinityschool.org. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast coming live, not live, really not, I need to come up with a better bit than coming to you live, but coming coming to you from from, from now fallen, apparently on fire, destroyed Chicago, I... Uh, so 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 say, so say the many oracles, soothsayers, and cops who live in this city who are now absolutely convinced that the city is uh, going to descend into crime and chaos, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, after the cop candidate got absolutely blown the fuck out in the last elections. And yeah, with me to talk about this election and a couple of other elections that happened on the same day that were very funny and where the worst people in the world got absolutely destroyed is Ali, who is one of my friends and is an election analyst. Uh, yeah, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Mia. Nice to be nice to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited. Yeah, because this is just very funny. It's extremely funny. I personally was really enjoying getting to read the Twitter tea leaves. You could tell kind of which aldermen were having meltdowns on election night. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess I guess we can start with with the stuff that happened in Chicago, which is that Paul Vallis, the 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 butcher of the public education system, uh, running dog of the cops, uh, the hero of J six people, I uh, was just kind of thwacked in an election by Brandon Johnson, the sort of progressive candidate who I'm very excited. I no longer have to pretend that I like particularly much. uh yes no as as mia says uh paul vallis um resident dino from palos heights a southwest suburb of chicago who conveniently bought an apartment in chicago exactly a year before the election which is how long you have to live in chicago to be the mayor um lost the runoff to Brandon Johnson a black progressive who was on the Cook County board um about uh, when all the results are done coming in in a couple of weeks it'll be about 52% for Johnson and 48% for Vallis as Mia says this lets a lot of people on the left no longer have to uh keep up the charade of oh Johnson's the best thing that has happened to us in sliced bread Thank for Christ. <laughs> If you are like more of a uh, like Democratic Party loyal progressive voter, this is a very, very good thing in your eyes. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think there's something very interesting and kind of fitting about this, which is that, yeah, one of the things we've talked about is that, yeah, like Brennan Johnson is the first like progressive TM mayor Charles had since like – I mean, literally since Harold Washington, who was the first black mayor in the 80s. And it's very interesting also because a bunch of the reforms that Harold Washington did were specifically overturned by Paul Vallis. Yeah. Like, he's the guy who did a bunch of educational reforms that fucking sucked, that destroyed uh, Harold Washington's stuff. It's... No, it's it's really wild how, like... um, 
Chicago politics is analogous to, to go really out there for a second, uh, is analogous to the state of Hawaii in the sense that people never die. Um, <laughs> yeah. The same people are going to be on your ballot for 50 years and you just kind of have to suck it up and deal with it. But every so often, someone good comes along um, or at least someone better. And if you get them into office the first time and if you get them to survive their first re-election campaign, then they get to be one of the people who's on the ballot forever and who never dies and slowly but surely you can make chicago politics less shitty but yeah as mia said this is going to be the first progressive chicago mayoral administration uh since harold washington um and johnson won the same way as harold washington did on yeah the backbone of johnson's coalition just as with harold washington's was black voters johnson got about 80 percent of the black vote because in Chicago elections are usually more about race than anything else. Um, But in addition to the black vote, Johnson won with progressives in white and non-black communities of color, uh, as well as LGBTQ voters. And finally fulfilling the dreams of the here's how Bernie can still win people from 2015. (laughs) um, A, actual uh, turnout surge of millennial and Gen Z voters. Uh, The Chicago Board of Elections is, um, I don't think that anyone would call them great, but they do produce some nice live statistics on election day as the votes are tallied and voters under 45 uh, had a turnout surge of, I think it was about 20%, whereas voters older than 60, the raw number of their votes actually went down. Um, and this likely does almost entirely account for Johnson's margin of victory, that he was able to turn out young voters and that old people just like stayed home. Yeah, and I, I think it's also, you know, we talked about this in the, the episode we did about Paul Fallis, but one of the things about the initial election was that like, the fact that Johnson made it out of the primaries at all with a, a genuinely nightmarish like age uh, like bracket of turnout in the first round is sort of a miracle. But, you know, it got it got a lot better for him in, in this one. And that genuinely seems to have like I I don't know, like I, I, I know a lot of people who spent a lot of time like canvassing their asses off and it actually seems to have worked. And I don't know. I mean, you know, it remains to be seen to the extent to which this was about, like, the fact that Vallis is, like, probably would have been the worst mayor of Chicago in, like... We like don't have a, to go. We don't have to go back that far. Daly was mayor of Chicago as recently as 2011. <laughs> That's true, but I... I don't know. Da- 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 Daly, yeah. I mean, it's not like Chicago has good mayors, but I, I think he would have been... Okay, here's a, I think he would have been the most politically far right mayor Chicago has had in a long time. Oh yeah, like he's just a Republican, like like yes. a pretty like yeah, and you know that fucking sucks. But he got clobbered. There's also there's a, a really funny result I want to talk about, which is that okay, so the the part of Chicago, the neighborhood of in Chicago where. The Cubs stadium is is right next to Boys Town, which is the fucking gay district. And if if you if you go in and look at like, well, I say I say it's the gay district. Like a lot a lot of 
it's 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 now the rich gay part of Chicago because everyone's no, house got priced out. Well, it no, kind of is. No, it's not. Market Park is the rich gay part of Chicago. That's true. That's uh, true. It, okay, it, it, it's it's more of a rich gay part of Chicago than it was like forty years ago, like thirty yes. years ago. Yeah, but like it, it, like literally exactly split. You can like you can like see in the data exactly split down the line. The gays voted for Brandon Johnson, and all the people and all the Cubs fans voted for Vallis. It's so funny. It is. It is extremely funny. And I will give a quick shout out here to the Chicago urbanist Twitter account who made what I personally think is the funniest meme to have come out of the election, oh. <laughs> um, which is a bunch of like uh, stick figures and just like black and white labeled Vallis voters running from a like steamroller a pink steamroller with a rainbow like wheel uh being driven by a bunch of gay people and the steamroller is labeled boys town it's really good like they <laughs> i don't know like like there 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 is this sort of a like th- this is sort of like the th- this is the coalition that well, I mean, again, we talked about this. Like, this is this is the Harold Washington Coalition. Like, this is the coalition that if you if you're an elect electoralist, like, you need to produce something that looks like this if you want to have any serious chance of winning. <clears throat> and yes, yeah, and the fact that it actually worked is sort of oh, it's a goddamn miracle. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's, it's, this shit never works. People have been trying to do this for like forty fucking years, and it, it uh, never works. I mean, but, people have been trying to do this for forty plus years, but it's also like this is really the first election that I can think of anywhere um, since uh, Barack Obama's re-election in twenty twelve, where like this is the coalition that actually put someone in like an office that got a lot of national attention and that mattered. Um, that's not to say that it like literally hasn't happened anywhere else. I'm just saying I can't think of any off the top of my head. Um, but like in 2012, Barack Obama became the first person to be elected president of the United States with less than forty uh, percent of the white vote, uh, a feat that has never since been repeated. Um, Clinton got less than that and lost. Trump obviously won, and Biden won because white voters swung left in twenty twenty. So, like, this is a turnout and coalitional puzzle that most people fail to put together, and that Brandon Johnson miraculously pulled off. Yeah, and I, I think. On the one hand, okay, th- this is legitimately kind of because the result is not the thing that normally happens. It is legitimately an interesting question as to why this happened, and like a like a, le- a sort of like legitimately kind of difficult like political science question. On the other hand, most of the people attempting to answer it have just, oh my fucking god! Like if I if I if I, if I have to read another New York Times article writing about this, that's like. Uh, like just clearly cobbled together from three Wikipedia articles. Like I'm going to literally go insane. I think you, me and every other person in Chicago, um, you know, no matter if you were a Johnson voter or a Vallis voter or someone who stayed home, we can all come together in our hatred of that 538 piece that was dropped oh on the morning of election God. day. Um, I, if you don't know what I'm talking about, 
you are lucky and I'm not going to tell you. Um, yeah, if you really I, I want to. I will, I, will, I will give you a very brief summary of it, which is that 538. No, 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 no we don't have. They, no. they, 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 did, they, did, they did a racism. <laughs> they did a racism. Did a, that, that's that's they, what I'll leave yeah. it at. They, they, the, they did a racism and they were very wrong. <laughs> the, they, they basically did the four races, white, black, Latino, and leftist. Yeah, which is very funny. <laughs> but, um, but hopefully, um, I hope I'll take a stab at ex- explaining what happened, and hopefully, it's better than yeah. most people's explanation. But um, I think part of it is that, um, as I mentioned earlier, historically, Chicago elections have been about race, and like this was no um, exception. This was much more of an ideological uh, break, like the ideological lines were a lot clearer in this election than previous mayoral races. Um, But the foundation of Brandon Johnson's electoral victory was the 80% of the vote that he got in black majority neighborhoods. Um, Black voters in Chicago selected the black candidate because they looked at the white guy and said, Oh, we think you're going to be a massive dipshit. Um, And beyond that, you have a couple of other things working in Johnson's favor. So like one, um, when it comes to the youth vote, I cannot really believe I'm saying this because I, when this was announced, it's not that I thought it wouldn't help. It's just that I wasn't sure that it would help enough, but, uh, Johnson got a lot of national progressive figures to endorse him, including Bernie Sanders and his campaign literally flew Bernie in for a rally uh, on a college campus here in Chicago. And I think that genuinely did actually get a lot of young people to realize that there was an election that they should pay attention to. Which is wild um, because like, like, like this happened, like people fly in Bernie a lot and it never mm-hmm. matters, but it like it mattered here, which mm-hmm. is sort of amazing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like just a lot of this election was wild. Um, I think the other thing that really helped Johnson was that um, a like Chicago is a lot less white than it used to be, which is not something that usually gets said in this day and age because Chicago is becoming whiter um, than it was like 10, 15 years ago. But Chicago was a lot less white than it was in the eighties when Harold Washington was elected. And so like there was more of a ceiling on Paul Vallis's vote than um, Harold Washington's opponents had, um, which meant that Vallis had to be able to appeal to uh, not just white voters who reflexively were against any black candidate, but he also had to make inroads in Hispanic, Asian, as well as black communities and trying to get the black conservative vote. Um, and he didn't Vallis didn't do a terrible job here, um, but he just didn't do a job that was good enough. He actually probably won the Latino vote. Um, it would it wasn't like a huge win, but it was a win. Um, but the problem is that turnout in on the southwest side of Chicago, which is where the majority of Chicago's Mexican American residents live, was just super low. Um, just like really, really atrociously in the tank uh like to the extent that like this is the kind of turnout that inspires the online jokes about how no one ever bothers to vote level bad turnout on the southwest side um so if hispanic turnout had been on the same level as white and black turnout the race probably would have been a lot closer um 
Valis also won Chinatown, which is something that got a fair amount of attention on social media. But Johnson was able to win the two other Asian ethnic enclaves in Chicago, uh, which are the Vietnamese neighborhood in Uptown called Asia and Argyle, as well as the uh, Desi neighborhood on uh, the far north side. And I don't think we can really say how Asian voters uh overall voted definitively um, because Asian voters in Chicago are pretty well diffused through the city. But it's very clear that like Vallis did not get the runaway win with Asian voters that Eric Adams, for example, did in New York City. Yeah, and and I, I specifically want to talk about Argyle for a bit because mm-hmm. the fact that Johnson won Argyle is fucking insane. Oh yeah, these are like like this is a community of Vietnam War refugees. Like these people are hardline anti-communist. Like you go into these restaurants and they all have Fox News on. So like yeah, Johnson winning these voters is incredible. Yeah, I mean like one one, one of the most famous noodle shops there was a guy who was at January sixth. Mm-hmm. Like this is this is a like a a stereotypically unbelievably dog shit place for Johnson and. Yeah, and I'm, I was say this about the China Chinatown, and this is something like I mean, you just you can know this is something like I've been tracking for a while. I mean, just by like walking through it, is that Chinatown during the pandemic and kind of after it, and it was having a bit before, has gotten just notably more fascist. Like, oh yeah, there's no, a lot of stuff there. I mean, the the the, the anti homelessness stuff is really, really, really intense. They're, they've been going really hard in the and. and that's the thing that kind of makes sense, right? Like this is this is a thing that you would kind of expect out of, like yeah, of course small business owners are gonna like go right, like that's like that's that you know that that's the you can you you can you you can find Marx writing about this phenomena in like eighteen forty eight, right? Like this is this is, this has been a thing since the beginning of time, but I don't know, it, it's gotten it's gotten legitimately kind of scary down there. Yeah. And like a lot of it also, I think, was, um, uh, you know, there's been a divergence between how the north side Asian enclaves like the Desi neighborhood and the Vietnamese neighborhood have responded to this kind of stuff um, versus Chinatown, uh, especially on the other uh, big social uh, change that happened during the pandemic, which was the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests. Yeah, Um, I think. From what I saw, like the reaction on the on the north side among these Asian enclaves was pretty overall supportive of the protests, whereas down in Chinatown, as well as in McKinley Park, which is a Hispanic majority neighborhood, but has a pretty significant Asian population, um, those neighborhoods had this really, really big like surge of anti-black racism in response to the protests like there were quote-unquote neighborhood watch groups that got formed um and it was just it was bad um and you know the vietnamese voters on argyle even though they're very like you know they have fox news on like i said and they're really anti-socialist anti-communist there was a state rep um, I am probably going to butcher his name, for which I apologize, but I'm pretty sure his name is pronounced uh, Han Wen, um, who is Vietnamese himself, and he won the seat last year in 2022, and like he's very progressive. Um, so there has been this very sharp divergence in how the like 
Asian neighborhoods in Chicago have responded to some of the social events of the last few years. Uh, once again, my people, the, the great nation of China has fallen into social imperialism. Uh. I think the last thing that really should be talked about in the context of Johnson's electoral win, and when we come back, we can talk about the city council because that's also pretty interesting, um, is that uh, something that if you want to watch elections, especially if you want to watch Chicago elections, something you should understand is that the the capital M machine in Chicago is pretty much gone now. Um, and Brandon Johnson's win pretty much seals this. And it's not that the people are gone or that like the, you know, logistical um, operations of the machine are completely dead, but the machine has now lost two elections in a row um, because yeah. as much as Lori, <laughs> as much as Lori Lightfoot, sucked and she sucked so much um she also was an anti-machine candidate um like she was like capital a anti-machine when yeah. she ran and brandon johnson is not anti-machine in the way that Lori was but he definitely was not the candidate of like the machine so like they lost two elections in a row Mike Madigan has now been like indicted and he's probably going to prison for a very uh, long we, time. You should explain who Mike Madigan is because if okay, if you live in Illinois, like you know who Mike Madigan is. If you don't live in Illinois, Mike Madigan for my entire life, for like the lives of people who are much older than me, has been like the most the single most powerful political figure in all of Illinois. Like he runs everything. Yeah, like he he has like an iron grip over everything that has happened in this state for like yes. 40 years yes and he finally got uh indicted on <laughs> some federal like charges of like i don't even remember what the charges were but it was very like al capone-esque of like yeah we finally found something to nail you on so we're going to and so he got indicted last year and it is actually pretty impressive like how quickly his machine fell apart yeah uh, like he he just he didn't have an air ready to take control. Um, and so it's not that like machine politics is gone from Chicago. It's more that instead of a machine, there are now going to be a bunch of smaller machines, um, which is going to make it easier for like normal everyday people to actually have some say in the political process, which is a good thing. Yeah. And like the, the Chicago machine fucking sucks ass. I mean, like we talked mm -hmm. about sort of Val, like, I mean, Vallis was a machine guy, right? Yes, like, absolutely. And, and you know, and he, and this, like the, the thing about the, 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 the 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 machine has two values and it's corruption and neoliberalism <laughs> and honestly things, like not even neoliberalism well, so much I, anymore it's mostly just corruption yeah i mean they, they, they've kind of I, I i i would say i think they've gotten less ideological over the last 20 years mm -hmm. like well like, i think like last like decade and a half but they yeah they they really they really fucked it like chicago was like the political machine and you know, like, I mean, they, like they're in large part responsible for the creation of Obama's career, and they've parlayed that into losing to, like, the least popular mayor in, like, a generation, and then losing again to Brandon, like, to somehow to, to Brandon Johnson. And it's, I don't know, they've, they've, they failed spectacularly, and I, fuck them, they're awful, and I, yeah... Yes, they've no, absolutely. Robbed, they, they, yeah, fuck these guys. Yeah. They, they've they've robbed they've they've robbed the working class for too fucking long. Yeah, no, fuck these guys. Good riddance. Um, the world will be better when they're dead. Yeah. Uh, do you know what else the world would be better than? 
if I, you know, okay, that that was that was that was not my that was not my best effort. I apologize. For that. <laughs> <laughs> but the the world's question mark maybe better place if you buy these products and services question mark i don't know if i'm legally allowed to say that we'll see anyways here's some ads <laughs> and we are back yeah we should talk about what what johnson actually wants to do well do you want to get into that or do you want to talk about the city council first i think they actually overlap pretty well okay. um so like we can let's let's run through what johnson says he wants to do and we can then talk about how much of that might happen. Um, so Johnson, like we were talking about, is definitely going to be the most progressive mayor in Chicago's history uh, in terms of what he campaigned on, at least. Um, this was a crime election. Like, the dominant issue was crime. And Johnson did not say the words defund the police. In fact, he actually explicitly said that he would not cut the police budget. Um, but aside from, like, those literal words, he very much is in line with the progressive priorities of de-emphasizing, like, using people with guns who go through, like, six weeks of training or whatever. Um, so he wants to pass um, a bill called Treatment Not Trauma, which is replacing cops with mental health responders for 911 calls about mental health crises. He wants to pass another bill called the Peace Book Ordinance, which would expand restorative justice and violence intervention pro like projects and programs in the city. Uh, and he also wants to pass an ordinance to put significant restrictions on police department raids and like the police department's just actual ability to do raids altogether. Um, there is a very infamous contract here in Chicago called the shot spotter contract, which is this dumb software that is supposed to be able to like tell police when a gun goes off. Um, and like, as far as I can tell, doesn't, and just like straight up doesn't work. So Johnson wants to get rid of that. He also wants to eliminate the gang database, which if you are from Chicago, you probably know what we're talking about is this very infamous list of about 120,000 people, 95% um, of whom are either black or Latino. And they are on this list called the gang database, more or less because one day some random Chicago police officer decided to put them on the list. Um, it's very dumb. It's very racist. It's very blatantly unconstitutional. And hopefully Brandon Johnson is able to get rid of it. Yeah. And these, and these are all things like, you know, as, 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 as much as we can talk about the extent to which like is, you know, as, as much as we can, we can talk about the sort of the complicity of like mental health responders and the police system, wherever the fuck, like these things would all like make a lot of people's lives better and make yes. the police weaker. And you know, I mean, one one of the things about this election, right, is that the people who are actually affected by crime vote for Johnson. The people who are not affected by crime at all all voted for Vallis. Yep. And part of the reason for that is that, like, okay, if you're in a place like in Chicago that has a bunch of crime, you are dealing with like you're dealing with the crime. You are dealing with a lot of people getting shot, which is fucking shit. And then you're also dealing with the CPD, who are like function most of the time are functionally a cartel. About yep. about every like we're we're, we're kind of due for another set of like prosecutions for them like roughly every like seven or eight years there's a massive series of arrests by the FBI or like the feds come in and like discover that there's like a giant uh, there's a giant cartel operating out of the CPD we've talked about this Dis discover in 
discover in air quotes because everyone knows. <clears throat> oh yeah, everyone knows. And, and you know, the the, the 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 Chicago police in particular are very famous for the code of silence, which is that every single person, if if, if a cop commits a crime, every single other cop will cover for them. Uh, going right up to the t- like the top of the ladder of the police chiefs and all the way down to like l dipshit like uh like beat cop yeah and you know and, and so you know it, like if you're a person who has to deal with these people and who, oh it sucks it fucking yeah, sucks and like awful. there's chicago is kind of um in many ways not the ground zero, but like a ground zero for a phenomenon where you have these poor neighborhoods of color who, you know, the people who live in these neighborhoods, they are simultaneously over-policed and under-policed because the police don't bother to show up half the time when like they're theoretically needed, right? Like someone gets shot, you call 911 and the cops don't bother showing up for hours um, if they bother showing up at all. Um, and at the same time, when they do show up, they often cause more problems than they solve. Um, like Chicago has really, truly horrific clearance rates of violent crime. Um, and this is mostly because CPD just insists on maintaining this really awful balance. You know, if you do believe in police, you want there to be a pretty healthy balance between beat cops and detectives, right? Well, with Chicago police department, they're almost are no detectives left. Like it's almost all beat cops. And so there's not many resources that go into um, actually investigating crimes that can't be solved by someone just walking around or driving around in a patrol car. Um, So these neighborhoods, like, you know, you go down to the South side or the West side, a lot of these, a lot of the residents in these neighborhoods would tell you because they're not leftists. Right. So they would tell you that they want more police officers Um, but they don't want more beat cops necessarily. Like they want more detectives and they want officers who are actually going to care about them as people. Unfortunately, the Chicago police department is made up of fascists. So like, um, you know, low chances on that front, but it's like, that is the problem these neighborhoods are facing is that like the police don't bother to care. And when they bother to show up, they often make things worse. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, I, I think the other thing that's sort of important here, right, is like you, you get a lot of, you know, like it, it's very easy for people to be like, oh, hey, look, actually, these people want more police. But it's like, you know, w- w- when you look at what there, there, there was a study taken right before the election that was talking about voters, uh, like what their preferences on, like, like what, what their sort of opinions on crime are. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what, yeah, I know I what you're was, talking about. I think it was uh, like only 18% of the people who said that crime was important to them wanted more cops. And almost everyone, you know, part, part of it was like they, part, like their, one of their big concerns was illegal guns. And then the other big concern was just like the fact that there's the, these places are really poor and there's no opportunities yeah. for people. It's, it's like there's, there, there aren't economic opportunities. There are so many guns just on, you know, just lying around in these communities and and obviously that's a problem throughout the country but it's especially bad in low-income neighborhoods in chicago um and the other thing was mental health like you know and that's one of the other things that johnson wants to do is he wants to reopen the mental health clinics that got closed down by rom uh, or rom emanuel who is a previous mayor of chicago who uh is currently being inflicted upon the people of japan as the u.s ambassador and you know um (laughs) 
They deserve it. This is this is this is what you get for siding with the CIA, you fucking <laughs> fucking dipshits, man. Like if the Liberal Democratic Party didn't want to have to get fuck have to deal with Rahm Emanuel, they shouldn't have taken all that CIA money. <laughs> um, but yeah, like Johnson wants to, you know, reopen these mental health clinics. He wants to increase funding for public schools, which have very much not gotten the funding that they need in Chicago for the past several decades at this point. Yeah. Um he also wants to expand public transportation in Chicago. Like there are a lot of proposals flying around for expanding the train lines and bus lines and bike grid. Um, there are also, um, as me and I were talking about before we started recording, there are a lot of lead pipes, like water pipes yeah. in Chicago. So many fucking um, lead pipes. Yes. Awful. And sh- and like Chicago is like supposed to be replacing them. It's proceeding very slowly. Johnson wants to speed that up. There's like just very genuinely a lot of research on the books directly linking lead poisoning to a lot of social problems. Yeah. Um, and so it's very much one of these things where it's like, you know, if you replace the lead pipes, crime will go down. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to talk a little bit about the mm-hmm. infrastructure stuff for just yes. a second, because like I, Okay, in the in the last three years, Chicago's public transit system has just been fucking imploding. Oh, it's, there are, it's, it's so bad. There are there are reasons for this, some of which I can talk about, some of which I can't. Like partially it was the pan, partially there was the pandemic, and they like a bunch of the people who were supposed to be running the system fucking died because, you know, they got forced to work during the pandemic. But like, you know, you'll like trains just won't show up. There are buses mm-hmm. that are basically unusable because it's it's like you're basically sitting there trying to roll double ones as to whether the bus will fucking show up at all. Um, the wait times are enormous. Like it, it's a real shit show. And like, it's, it's substantively way worse than it was when I was in the city in like 2015, 2019. Yeah. It's really, really bad. And it's, it's, it's atrocious. Yes. The other factor that has to be talked about there is that like, so the Chicago public transit system is not free. Like most systems um like it is funded by rider fares like it's very yeah it costs a lot to get on oh comparatively it costs a lot to get on the train or get on a bus um and one of the kind of uh like self-reinforcing cycles that has been playing out the last few years is that Chicago also has a really bad homelessness problem. And this is directly linked to the fact that the city just does not want to give people housing. Yeah. Um, and so what ends up happening is that a lot of, of Chicago's homeless residents, um, especially in the colder winter months, they end up on the trains, especially the two lines that run 24 hours a day. Um, and, you know, these are people who are really, they're living in really really terrible conditions like they don't have regular access to clean food and water let alone like clean access to like like regular access to like hygienic facilities um and so ridership really plummeted on the lines where homeless people started to like just go on in order to stay warm um and so you get the hit because rider fares are now down because people don't want to deal with being on the same train line as homeless people who, you know, uh, frankly, just don't smell that good or have mental health problems. And the city doesn't want to give these homeless people housing, let alone like even like smaller things like like access to bathing facilities or healthcare or anything like that. Um, 
And so it becomes this self-reinforcing cycle of now fares are down, so there's less investment, so more people abandon the system. Um, and it is this thing where, like, this will, this would get solved if Chicago committed to giving homeless people housing. But that's just not where the city has unfortunately been. Yeah, and I mean, you know, and, and what, what's been happening instead is, like, you know, increasing anti-homeless architecture, like, Chicago train stations fucking suck ass because mm-hmm. they're all designed so that's impossible to sit on anything. Oh my god, uh, there are only two benches in each station. It sucks. So many stations, like it, it's so bad. Like it's just awful. Like one of the things that Chicago has is they have these like you know it gets really really cold here in the winter, so they have these like warming stations so that when it's mm-hmm. like fucking negative twenty out, you can be in the warming things. But there's no they intentionally make it so there's no benches in them so you can't sit in them. Yeah, it sucks. It like it, it's it's you know it's it, they 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 have this really just like the the, the hatred of homeless people is turned basically into a war against all society waged by yes. the city, and yes. it's atrocious. <laughs> the good news is that Brandon Johnson wants to pass an ordinance called "Bring Chicago Home," which would um, put a tax on. Uh, property transfers for like I think it's like homes that are worth over a million dollars that and the money from that tax would go entirely to funding programs for the city's homeless residents all the way up to and including permanent shelter um, or like permanent housing solutions so you know you know fingers crossed on that one um, because that I think along with the public safety measures is really the thing that the city needs the most. Um, And Johnson also on the housing front, um, he wants to liberalize zoning laws, which I know is a very big debate on the left at the moment about, you know, how we go about approaching building more housing. Um, Johnson very much is on like the pro development end of things. He wants to liberalize zoning laws and make it so that it's easier to build multifamily housing. um, And previously like single family Uh, housing zoned areas um he does also want to pass just cause for eviction so like your landlord would not be able to throw you out just because um, which which is a good thing yeah chicago's landlords are really shit they're terrible i i have seen across the board terrible yeah like i god like i have seen shit doing tenant organizing that is like 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 think th- things that make me like have to control my reflex to vomit just remembering them like it's yes. truly yes. atrocious um but yeah uh the other thing and th- that something that will matter to you if you are living in Chicago uh very much is that Johnson wants to cap property taxes so um one of the things that's been driving a lot of reactionary politics in Chicago is that property taxes here are linked to inflation um which means that if you are a property owner in Chicago in the last couple of years your property taxes went up by like 15 plus percent um which understandably made a lot of people mad um because, you know, if you if your taxes go up by that much that fast, you at least want it to be going to something good. And under our previous, well, soon to be previous mayor, Lori Lightfoot, that absolutely was not happening. Yeah, it was um, going to like cop over time or some mm-hmm. shit like. <sighs> yes. So Johnson uh, is he campaigned on 
decoupling property taxes from inflation so they would no longer just automatically go up um which would bring a lot of financial relief to a lot of chicago families um and also he would basically like wants to pass a lot of taxes focused on wealthier residents as well as big businesses to help fund some of the programs uh which brings us to the city council and how much of a chance he has of getting this passed, which is better than you might think if you are familiar with Chicago politics. Um, something that surprises people who don't live in the city is that Chicago is not run by progressives. Um, there has <laughs> actually pretty much never been a progressive majority on the city council. Um, and there isn't, there will not be a progressive majority on the new one that comes in with Johnson. He is going to be presiding over a minority government in parliamentary terms, which I think we should use more often because I'm a nerd and I find it fun. But, um, (laughs) basically there are 50 members of the Chicago city council. They're called aldermen because we insist on having a city council that is the size of a state legislature here. Um, and about 22 of them are going to be aligned with Johnson, more or less. So he's going to be three votes short on a lot of things, at least from the beginning. He is going to be negotiating with the uh, black political establishment here in Chicago, which is one of the smaller machines that is left in the aftermath of Madigan's indictment. Um, And we are going to see how this goes. Some of those uh, black aldermen are friendlier to Johnson from the get go, partially because of ideology and partially because a lot of them just like personally know him and like him. Um, Some of them are very against him for similar reasons, like they either ideologically don't line up or they just dislike him on a personal basis. Um, We should talk. We should say a little bit about Johnson's not like. A, some kind of like political like political outsider like no he's, he's not. been around he's kind of kind he has like interesting relations with the old sort of like prepwinkle like uh labor machine um yeah. he he's definitely <laughs> like johnson is definitely part of a machine um his relationship with like the old machine was very bad but he is definitely yeah. part of a machine that is tied up in like the institutional labor unions that have a lot of sway in democratic politics here uh including the Chicago Teachers Union which like you know Vallis's whole stick during the runoff was that Johnson would be a stooge for the teachers union um and the teachers union really just like the teacher, uh, the, this is actually kind of funny because like the teachers union really just swept the board here, not just with Johnson, but with like a lot of the city council races where they weighed in. Um, so if you are a member of the Chicago teachers union who does not approve of their leadership, um, buckle up because the next several years they are going, they're almost certainly going balls to the wall of like, well, if we can get a mayor, we can get a lot of other people too. Yeah, and we should mention here that so <clears throat> a lot of the other unions in Chicago like are kind Suck. of eh. Yeah, they, they range from eh to shit. Uh, the Chicago Teachers Union got taken over by this group called Core, who are like a sort of rank and file like lefty like. I I think I think a good way to understand Core is that like with the caveat that like. Teachers in Chicago really don't make that much money in the grand scheme of things. So, like, income-wise, this does not line up. But these people are very much, like, kind of resistance liberals on steroids. Um, Like, 
they're not going to be like frontliners in a socialist revolution anytime soon, but like they are definitely on the far left of the Democratic Party coalition. Yeah, well, and we should like they're not like like they are they are like I don't know. I I, I have complicated feelings on them from that sort of anarchist perspective. They're like they're they're as good of a thing of like union people as like you currently have again we've talked about this this could change with nnu very quickly but yeah they've they've been responsible for pushing a lot of things that are very good yes and they've 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 turned the union into like i mean well it's okay so like one thing to talk about like they actually do go on strike which is the thing that a lot of unions fucking don't like they go on strike they do they do political things that are usually pretty good um and they are an actual sort of like they're an actual they sort are, of class space for uh, things uh, getting better. <laughs> yes, they are. The Chicago Teachers Union is definitely like a net good force in city politics. Um, and something that also like CTU gets a lot of negative attention, um, even on a national level. And so something that surprises people who don't live in Chicago, if they know about the Teachers Union at all, is that the CTU is actually very popular. Uh, among the yeah. city's residents people like them, most like, like people love the chicago teachers union like when the teachers last went on strike the public was over overwhelmingly on their side uh which is why they won um and ctu also like their 2019 strike uh against Lori lightfoot was very much like the inspiration that touched off a lot of the teacher strikes that happened in red states uh over the next several months um like they very much kind of led the way in some uh in some areas like so they are like like mia i have complicated feelings about the ctu but overall they're a good thing for city politics and like they make chicago a more progressive place yeah and, and this has been true for like a while too like like to, to the extent that when like i think in like back in, back in 2012 and core was like 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 back back when Core sort of first taking over and was first doing their strikes, like even the CTU people were surprised about the extent to which like when they went out, like the streets turned into a party. Like people actually really do like them. Like I mean, the yes. cops don't, but like fuck them. Like <laughs> fuck this people. Yeah, no. So the cops don't like them, and to CTU's credit, most Chicago teachers dislike the cops. Yeah, I mean, um, they've they've been they've been trying to get cops out of schools, which is good because yes, cops in schools are especially terrible. in Chicago. It's really bad. <laughs> um, the last thing I think we should mention about the city council before we move on to some of the other elections we need to talk about is. Um, one of the things that gets criticized about the left as an electoral force in places like New York or Los Angeles, especially those two places, uh, is that it's very dominated by white people. Um, and I do want to provide the context for those of you who are not from the Chicago area. Like, that's not true in Chicago. Um, the progressive movement and the left, like the leftist movement on an electoral level in Chicago is very much driven by people of color. Uh, and you saw this in the city council election results. Almost every single seat that progressives flipped on the city council was in a black or brown ward. And even the two wards, like the two white majority wards where they flip seats, the new aldermen or alderwomen in both cases are people of color. Um, so like, this is just like, 
context for those of you who are not from Chicago, this is not a case of like white leftists gone wild. Um, like this very much is a rainbow coalition, not just in the sense that Brandon Johnson won the election off of rainbow coalition, but in the sense of the electoral left in Chicago is very, very much a rainbow coalition and has been very effective because of that. Yeah. And, and it's very funny too, because you, you, you see people like, the sort of right wingers in Chicago like constantly scream about like lakefront liberals, and you look at like the actual base of like <laughs> left policy shit. It's like okay, like this is this is this is simply not what's actually happening here. Yes, but, the the honest like the thing about um, like race and its relationship with progressive politics in Chicago is that the most progressive neighborhoods in Chicago, based on their voting patterns, are almost always the most racially integrated. Um, And that's not to say that like all of the racially integrated neighborhoods are progressive because that's not true. Um, There are some pretty integrated neighborhoods on the Southwest side that are like very conservative because a bunch of cops live there. Um, But most of the racially integrated neighborhoods of Chicago are also the most progressive neighborhoods. And that like really just flies in the face of the whole like white lakefront liberal narrative um, and is is something to pay more attention to. Okay, again, it, it cannot be emphasized enough. Brandon Johnson, the progressive candidate, is black. He's running against a white guy. There was a very large attempt to paint like Brandon Johnson as like an out of touch, like white liberal like, 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 yeah, that progressive, was, which is that very was really funny. weird. Yeah, I, mean, I think I, 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 like they just have I don't know. I mean, it was just the sort of like ideological bankruptcy of like <laughs> like the, 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 the sort of like capitalist establishment is like they have nothing. Right. Like, yeah. They're, they're like the only thing they have left is like calling a black guy white. And it's just like, shut the fuck up. Like <laughs> nobody, <laughs> nobody believes this shit anymore. Like, uh and on that note, it might be time for some ads. <laughs> yeah, we are. We are back from our ads. Uh, I hope you have enjoyed the destruction of the entire world. Uh, yeah. OK, so th- th- we, we, we have talked about Chicago for a long time because you're both from Chicago. It's very funny and it's very interesting. But oh, actually, OK, I'm realizing this. There's one more thing I do. The two more things I do specifically want to mention about Brandon Johnson that I forgot earlier. <laughs> one is that he. You know, it's genuinely unclear to me whether this is a a real ideological belief he has or whether this is a thing that he said to not get called an anti-Semite because it was electorally expedient. But he released a really, really shitty statement on, like, boycott, divestment, and sanctions of Israel. Oh, that was, yeah, yeah, like, like turbo-dog Oh, yeah, it was terrible. It was really terrible. Like, but, like, he, based yeah, he, on what I saw from the aftermath of that... Um, I'm inclined to believe that this was more something he was told to say. Um, and the reason for that is because the reaction it got with the crowd he was in front of was like he was speaking with a Jewish organization. Like the reaction was very like, OK, dude, but that's not what we asked you about. Um, like it was a response to a question about like, oh, you know, how do you handle anti-Semitism? Um, and I think there are just unfortunately a lot of really dipshit consultants in the Democratic Party who hear the words anti-Semitism and think you have to talk about Israel, which is um, really, truly and ironically anti-Semitic of them to think. Um, Like, yeah, I think 
he was probably told to say that. Um, I'm not going to go out on a limb and I guess what his actual beliefs on Israel and Palestine are, um, but I'm pretty confident that that was his consultants being dumb. Yeah, but I, but like I, I like the but the actual consequences is he, like he was equating like he was equating BDS and anti-Semitism. He, I like go. You should try to go find the clip somewhere because it's genuinely bizarre and shit. Mm-hmm. And this is this is the part of the episode where I want to remind people that like. When 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 these kinds of people get into power, it is not as good as people think it's going to be. Like another thing, he very like he almost immediately, like right after he got elected, started trying to convince Biden to have the Democratic uh, National Convention in Chicago, which would be a fucking shit show. Yeah, this is Mia from the future here. Uh, two days after we recorded this, the Democratic Party announced that the 2024 Democratic National Convention will indeed be held in Chicago. So yeah. It's going to suck. That effort predates him. Like, that's yeah. already been in the works. Yeah. Like, he definitely immediately came out and said, like, yes, I'm in support of this. Yeah, which is, like, some people don't understand why. Okay, so, like, one, the, the, the thing that happens when, when, when a national convention comes to your city is that your city is occupied by the cops. And then, like, yeah. wherever the convention is happening basically turns into a war zone because anyone who comes out to try to protest them just gets, like, the shit beaten out of them. Yes, and, and there's also usually a lot of anti-homeless policies that get rolled yeah, out in advance. We actually, we, 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 this is it's, it's 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 not as bad as the stuff we talked about with Lula in terms of the World Cup, but it's a similar kind of thing that you get with these kinds of candidates where they they do these sort of like giant, they do these sort of like mega project developmentalism shit because they want the status that comes from it and the result is stuff that sucks and that you know nominally like like at least in theory like contradicts the rest of his platform right like this this is going to be a thing that brings a lot of cops into the fucking city he's in theory supposed to be trying to have policing done by like people who are cops um that's gonna suck if it works yeah, so, and that is that is your reminder for if you do live in Chicago like me and I, that just because Brandon Johnson got elected does not mean that you get to sit home. Um, like, if you are involved or invested in Chicago progressive politics, um, just because you have a progressive mayor doesn't mean you get to sit back and relax. You have to do a lot of work to hold these people's feet to the fire. Yeah, like you're you, and, and like you're you're gonna end up fighting these people, and it's gonna suck, and you're gonna have to do it like. If, if 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 you if you believe in the things that you th- that you claim to believe to and are not sort of just acting out of like you know either you're not just purely acting out of sort of candidate loyalty you are you are going to have to fight people that you helped get elected and yes. you're going to have to start, prepare for that start like, the five stages of grief now okay mo- moving 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 on from that <laughs> shit moving uh, on we need to talk about Wisconsin um The other big election that happened on Tuesday night uh, was an election that flipped the Supreme Court of the state of Wisconsin from a conservative majority and not just like lowercase c conservative, but like batshit insane Christian nationalist conservative uh, from a majority of those people to a liberal majority that is hopefully going to make life better for the people of Wisconsin. Um, So... For those of you who are not paying attention to this, which is likely even more than the people who were not paying attention to Chicago because state Supreme Court races um, 
most people, if you tell them yeah. about those, react with "that's a thing." Um, yeah, and I mean, and to, to be to be fair, to be fair, this is probably the most nationally prominent like state supreme mm-hmm. court election of my lifetime. That means that maybe four people know about it instead of uh, one. Yep. <laughs> yes. So on Tuesday night, uh, Janet Protasewicz, uh, who was the Democratic aligned candidate, beat. The Republican-aligned candidate, Daniel Kelly, who was himself a former member of the Wisconsin Supreme Court, by 11 points, which is a really big deal because Wisconsin voted for Joe Biden by 0.6 points. Um, So this is very much like landslide level territory for Wisconsin Wisconsin Democrats. Um, It was very much a perfect storm, like the areas of the state that have been trending towards Republicans experienced massive reversion back towards Protosewitz. Um, and the areas of the state that have historically been Republican also really shifted left. Um, and the reason this happened, the single reason it happened, um, is because of the Dobbs ruling that overturned Roe v. Wade and um, brought American gender dynamics back by a solid 75 years. Um, Protosewitz successfully turned the campaign into a referendum on abortion rights, um, which is why she won by the margin she did. (laughs) There was huge turnout in Madison, Milwaukee, and college campuses. There were multiple college campuses, um, I think, where there were more votes cast uh, in this state Supreme Court election than there were in the midterms last November. (laughs) Um, So this really was like every single thing that possibly uh, could have gone right electorally for the Democrats in Wisconsin did, obviously with very, very like grim background context of the overturning of Roe, um, but a good sign for the future of the abortion rights movement that, you know, People voters did not forget about Dobbs after the midterms. Like this is still an active force in national politics that is pushing people to the left. Um, yeah, and I I, I, I want to specifically talk about this for a little bit too because, like, I think the, the media has kind of has really I think fallen down on the fucking job here, which is that oh, like these enormously. people. Like, because it's like all all the people in the fucking media class are either like themselves are like hardline anti-abortion ghouls, or they're people who this doesn't affect. And you know, so they just stop giving a shit after like a couple of months because it's like, ah, eh, whatever, who cares? But like, th- this is a if if you are living under this, like this is this is like you can't fucking ignore this. No, like it is it is a it is an immense engine of death and human suffering. That, you know, it, it's, 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 I mean, this is the US, right? We live under enormous, like, we live under a lot of immense sort of engines of death and human suffering, but this is, this is a kind of engine that just sweeps through, I mean, it, it, it sweeps across the sort of what you think of as like the quote unquote, like, like traditional sort of, uh, like, I don't know, like, Class lines is the right thing, but like you know, it's, it's, this is the thing that like kind of sweeps across the the urban rural divide in a lot of ways. Like it sweeps mm-hmm. quite a lot quite across a lot of the sort of normal political divisions, because the Republicans have been like their 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 line on abortion has been hijacked by. Well, I say hijacked, right? This is what this is what this is what these people always wanted, but it's it's been it, it's being set by a bunch of just deranged Christian nationalists 
whose opinion reflects maybe to like 30% of the country max. Not even that, like the yeah, like the ruling of the judge down in Texas on uh, I'm going to mess up how to pronounce this and I apologize, but um, if a pristone, which is an abort like a pill that among other things can induce abortions, uh, there was like a Republican judge down in northern Texas who attempted who like attempted to overturn the FDA's approval of the drug. The FDA approved this drug in the 90s, um, and his ruling very much was insane. Like, on top of just, like, the superficial insanity of trying to do this, his reasoning was that, you know, this man wrote a ruling saying that the Constitution guarantees fetal personhood, um, which is a, which, you know, would result in a complete and total ban on abortion um, nationwide under all circumstances. And that's a viewpoint that is shared by less than 10% of Americans. So, like, it's just, you know, the Republican Party has gone off the cliff after they went off the cliff here. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know. I, I I I think this whole, I think there's a lot of ways in which this entire sort of election, the election dynamics of this are really grim, because the Democrats are the people who let this shit fucking happen, right? Like for years and years and years and years, they just they you know they 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 used abortion as an electoral thing and then did fucking nothing to actually mm-hmm. make sure that abortion would be that you know would be saved. And they finally lost it, and now it's like you know it's the thing that's like. Like it's 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 the electoral issue that's coming to bail them out of their like electoral woes, and that fucking sucks in a lot of ways. But it also means, I don't know, like it's 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 beating some of the worst people in the fucking world. If we want to actually yes. make sure that people have the ability to have safe abortions on demand, we are going to have to do a lot of fighting that is not just showing up to these elections. Yes, absolutely. Um, but it is, yeah, no, like, like Mia said, it is really just like heinous that so many of the Democratic Party bigwigs who presided over the 50 years of Republicans saying they were going, going to do this and not taking Republicans seriously yeah, are and, never and, and going and to also, be held accountable for this. Yeah, um, and, and, and I, the other thing I need to, like, like, it needs to be pointed out with this too was like the Republicans the entire time were in every single way they possibly could, like outlawing abortion without literally outlawing it. And people just mm-hmm. stood that like the Democratic Party was just like, oh, we don't give a shit. Like we're, we're not we're yeah. not going to like actually like fight this except for occasionally <laughs> to run a losing candidate. Right. Like. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's it's insane. And like there are there are people in the Democratic Party who were trying to raise the alarm. Those people were generally ignored. Um, But the you know, now that abortion rights are gone on a national level, um, we are seeing this electoral backlash and it is having the impact of like, you know, Republicans have been unable to effectively make the national conversation about inflation or about crime or about trans athletes, um, which is also a losing issue for them, but God knows they keep trying. Um, But they have been unable to make the national conversation about those topics because voters are now looking at them like, but you're the freaks that took our abortion rights away. What's wrong with you? Um, And in terms of Wisconsin, 
Um, Protosewicz being on the Wisconsin Supreme Court is almost certainly... Uh, she doesn't take office until August, which is a really weird amount of time uh, yeah. for her to have to wait. Like, I don't know why Wisconsin is like that, but it is. Um, but once she is in office, um, Wisconsin should have restored abortion access, I would say, almost immediately. Um, basically, like as soon as someone can file a lawsuit over it, because right now, Abortion is currently illegal in Wisconsin under a law from 1849 um, that the only exception to the law is to save the life of the mother, which like I think people who are not personally impacted by the possibility of pregnancy or the possibility of childbirth, um, I think really don't emotionally internalize what the language around some of these exceptions means and it's like if if you are hearing the words like the only exception is life of the mother that's really terrifying because it means like if you're going to be permanently injured as someone who's pregnant but you're not literally going to die abortion is not an option for you if the uh, fetus that you are carrying you know whether you wanted an abortion or not if that fetus has some kind of fatal defect that is going to mean that your baby dies within hours or days after being born uh, and is going to be in pain the whole time abortion is not an option for you if you are pregnant because of sexual violence or because of incest abortion is not an option for you and it's it's like you know, I am a cisgender man, so like I can't personally understand, but like I can only guess how terrifying of a reality that is. Um, and the, you know, the only good news out of this is that once Protosewitz is in office, that law is probably going to go away as quickly as possible, um, which is a much needed victory for the people of Wisconsin and hopefully is, you know, carries the momentum forward for like post 2024. Hopefully we have a democratic trifecta again that can legislate abortion rights nationally and take it out of the ability, take away the ability for courts to strike it down. Um, There are some other um, ramifications for the state of Wisconsin that should also be mentioned. Um, For those of you who live in Wisconsin, um, if I say the words public sector union law, you know what I'm talking about. The very infamous law that was passed by Scott Walker back in 2010, 2011, I think, uh, that really restricted the collective bargaining rights of public sector unions. And like this sparked a recall campaign against Walker, which failed... um, And Protosewitz has uh, said on record, she said it in a campaign appearance um, because this race really just discarded all pretensions of like judicial impartiality. (laughs) Um, But she said in a campaign appearance that she wanted to get rid of that law. Um, So that law is probably going away uh, or hopefully will be going away. Um, Wisconsin also has very gerrymandered. Uh, state legislative maps that are almost certainly going to be struck down. Um, Same thing with its congressional maps, which means that Democrats can probably count on two more seats in the House uh, post-2024. And also, 
on a basic, like, do we live in a democracy or not level um, in 2020 when the Trump campaign was filing all of its really idiotic lawsuits alleging voter fraud. um, The Supreme Court of Wisconsin was the court that came the closest to taking those allegations seriously. Um, They voted by one vote to dismiss the case because one of the conservatives broke ranks and he has been hounded by the far right in Wisconsin ever since. Um, Wisconsin was one vote away from just throwing out the popular election results, uh, like the popular vote results. So there, you know, protest what's winning is literally an insurance policy for continuing to have the state of Wisconsin be a democracy. Yeah, which is good. Like, I don't know that having ha- having a state that is effectively ruled by a dictatorship that was about to attempt to install like a dictator's president um, is good. Like, I don't know. This is my my, my lib take on this is, is in fact not good <laughs> when uh, a bunch of people are ruled by just an open dictatorship. <laughs> So. Which is essentially what Wisconsin, you know, has been, yeah. um, barring Tony Evers's wins uh, as governor in 2018 and 2022, like until he was in office, like Scott Walker presided over a single party dictatorship in Wisconsin. Um, and so, like, you know, which is part of also why Protestavitz was able to win by the margins that she did, because, you know, Wisconsin is a swing state. It is reliably going to be close to 50 50 but especially on social issues it has a liberal majority and a lot of people paid attention to this race and they saw correctly the opportunity to dismantle the dictatorship that effectively has had control of wisconsin for the last decade plus yeah and i mean you know the other thing like part part of what we're what's happening here is that if 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 conservatives are actually allowed to do uncontested rule in in a place that's even like kind of not just like a 100% like conservative district i the results that they like the actual policies they put in place are fucking horrifying yeah it's bad it's like, like obviously bad but like you get i mean you get you get stuff like what happened in Tennessee in the last yeah. week where they the, you know, the state legislature expelled Democratic lawmakers um, for, like, engaging in the mildest of protests against, like, an open carry bill. Um, and, you know, just in a real cherry on top moment, the Tennessee state legislature only expelled the black legislators yep. who protested and the white legislator who joined them uh, survived her expulsion vote. Um, because, you know, we don't want to be you know, like the days of the Republican Party not wanting to be too on the nose about the racism are long gone. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, so. But overall, good things happened in Wisconsin on Tuesday. Um, and some of the really terrible things that were put into law in that state in the last decade are hopefully about to go away.
Yeah. There were some other places, mostly in the Midwest, um, because once again, the coastal regions of the country let us down. Um, But there were some other places where liberals or progressives did well on Tuesday. Um, St. Louis, Missouri has had a progressive city council and uh, there was a very strong kind of law and order challenge to that progressive majority based in the city's white majority wards. Um, and after Tuesday night, it's pretty clear that progressives will continue to have a majority on the city council. Um, in Kansas City, on the other end of the state of Missouri, um, we are probably going to get the most progressive city council that the city has ever had. Uh, they're the main left-wing group Uh, got all of its candidates through to the general election, which is on June 20th. And the main like right wing tough on crime group seems like it's going to be capped at winning two seats. Um, So, you know, once again, the Midwest is the engine of American progressivism and the West Coast can suck it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There is one more piece of good news, which is that um, in Illinois, there was a set of far right groups that ran a bunch of school board candidates on the like anti critical race theory, anti queer, anti trans platforms. Um, And actually, I'll just say the names of the groups because people should know Um, these groups are Awake Illinois, Moms for Liberty and the 1776 Project. Um, Basically, these groups are, you know, if you went to the South in the 1970s, you had the Klan and then you had the White Citizens Council, um, which was the supposedly more respectable face of white nationalism in the South in the 60s and 70s. Um, And groups like Moms for Liberty and Awake Illinois are kind of the equivalent to groups like the Proud Boys um, and very you know, fittingly with the analogy here, um, these groups are primarily uh, run and staffed by conservative women, just like white citizens councils were down south about 50 years ago. Um, And thankfully, these candidates almost all went down in flames. Um, I think there is a a school board election in me and I's hometown, which is very uh, notoriously conservative for people in the area. And even in that, in our hometown, they lost. (laughs) Um, And like these losses extended into downstate Illinois, too. And like there's a small city called Quincy in western Illinois where it's like this is a a a place that votes Republican routinely by like 30 points, like a 65 percent majority. And these far-right school board candidates lost in Quincy, Illinois. Um, So thankfully, people saw through the bullshit and were like, actually, you people are weirdos and we're not going to hand you power. Yeah, like, Um, another thing that was very funny is Carbondale, which is, like, a very, like, this is, like, like, this is, this is, this is a, Carbondale is a southern Illinois-ass town. It is, like, not quite as far south, technically speaking, as you can go in Illinois, but... Like it's close. Yeah, I elected their first trans person to serve in a city council anywhere in Illinois. So yep. like they're they're getting clobbered in fucking Carbondale. Like they they had a really like they got fucking just destroyed. And I'm very happy mm. about this because I you know, a lot of kids are going to grow up in schools that are way less shitty than they yes. were like even when I was there or like God help the generation before us was just like yep. 
survived shit and that like would have killed like me and most of the people like, i know like yeah yeah no the schools that me and i grew up in were not a great place to be queer or trans yeah. of any variety um but i mean this is also going to help because of i have i still don't know what the biden administration was thinking about this but like the new like rule that they're rolling out around trans participation in k-12 through sports through the department of education um this got a lot of attention on twitter in the last couple of days um because i'm gonna be as charitable as i can here to all of the people involved um but there was um a panic uh on in progressive circles on social media and especially queer and trans circles because the Washington Post decided to frame this rule in like the most like hyperbolic way possible and this is not me saying that the rule is good because the rule could definitely still be bad um but the Biden administration is essentially from what I can tell trying to include trans kids in title nine protections um the proposed wording of their rule is not great and definitely needs to be improved um but the outcome here can be good uh in the sense that it would ban uh blanket prohibitions on trans kids in k-12 sports and it would require exceptions to like it would require like any exceptions to pretty much be like you know you have to prove that there is a danger to like fair competition here, which is the standard that Title IX uses for um, sports for cisgender men and cis or cisgender boys and cisgender girls. So like, can be good. Will you know if you are invested in this? The public comment period on that rule is about to open. It's definitely a place where you should speak up and say like, hey, the wording of this is a little shit. Like let's be clearer here that the presumption should be that trans kids should be allowed to participate in on teams that align with the gender they identify as. Um, and thankfully, because a lot of these dipshit school board candidates lost, uh, hopefully some of these school boards will be taking the right side of history here. Yeah, go, go, go. Okay. So I, I I'm slightly more angry about this than, than you are because i yes. I, I, I i i i don't know i think i think there's a pretty glaring hole in this that lets transphobes just be like well obviously like, oh yeah and like i it's, yeah i i the, think the I think, wording is is vague and yeah it should be made a lot less vague i i think it's bad i don't know i i i think i think the the the, the backlash to the backlash about that went too far of now there's a bunch of people insisting that this is in fact a really good rule and like no like if if it's, if it's yeah. if it's if it's executed as is, it is going to let a lot of people do a lot of transphobic shit. Yes, um, as is, it is bad. If they change the wording of it, it can be better. Yeah, so uh, go yell at Biden until he makes it less shit. Uh, absolutely, in please go yell at Biden. You have to do this. Yes. Uh, yeah, if you see him, if you see him walking down the street, yell at him. <laughs> um if you see him in a restaurant yell at him uh yes yeah no, very very genuinely like a it's always a good idea to yell at the biden administration about anything um but b especially go yell at them about this uh this can be done multiple ways you can reach out to your congressional representatives and tell them that you want the rule 
uh, wording made better. Uh, you can go, there should be soon a direct like form you can fill out on the Department of Education website where you can uh, provide your own personal opinion on the rule. But basically, yeah, go yell at the Biden administration and tell them to insert language into the rule that makes very clear that the legal presumption uh, that must be overcome should be that trans kids get to compete on the teams of the gender they identify with. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, having now yelled about that for a bit, uh, yeah, we should, I think, start wrapping up the last sort of bits of electoral news. Yes, uh, okay, so the last thing I think we should talk about is probably Denver. Um, Denver, uh, for uh, those of you who do not know me and I, which is probably almost, I would hope almost everyone who listens to this, um, I will die on the hill that Denver is a West Coast city. Is it? It is not physically on the ocean, but the vibes rancid. Um, and like the rest of the West Coast, Denver let us down on Tuesday night. Um, the mayor's election is going to a runoff between two candidates who both have pretty awful platforms on homelessness. And... There is one that is worse. So if you are looking for the candidate to hold your nose and vote for uh, right now, you know, see how it goes. But right now, I would say that is Mike Johnson, not because he has anything good to say. He's he doesn't. But because his opponent, uh, Kelly Bro, says that she would have homeless people arrested if they refused to leave camps in public parks. Um, so she just fucking blows and she should be, you know, never be allowed anywhere in your power. Um, the other bit of Denver news I think we should talk about is there was a housing referendum where the proposal was to turn an old golf course that is not currently being used into a housing development that would have, um, I think 25% affordable units. Uh, and it would, part of it would also be turned into a park. Um, and in truly what I thought was the dumbest thing that happened on Tuesday night, um, the proposal lost um, and the Denver branch of DSA was campaigning against this housing development on the premise that building more housing is bad if someone profits off of it. And I definitely understand that. Prof- listen, like profiting off of housing is bad. We also need more housing. <laughs> And Denver especially desperately needs more housing. Um, And somehow we got this incredibly stupid coalition of NIMBYs and like green space environmentalists and the Denver DSA that all came together to stop the housing development. And Mia, I'm, I'm sure you probably think a little differently about this than I do, but I saw this and I was like, what the hell, man? I mean, okay, so here's my I, I know very little about this. My my take is that if you have the opportunity to destroy a golf course and you vote no, you are like as long as you're not literally building a prison camp like <laughs> reactionary dogs, the bourgeoisie destroy every golf course. Always a good you know, that's actually that's pretty good. That's that's a pretty good line. I, I should start saying it to more people. Destroy every golf course you can. Um but yeah, no, this it was, I think, the most frustrating thing that I saw happen on Tuesday night. And I think 
it is one of those questions that the left is going to have to deal with in the next couple of years is like, all right, we have a lot of cities that desperately need a lot more housing. So how do we get it done if you, you know, without just turning it over to the real estate lobby? Because obviously that would also be really shitty. Um, But the answer cannot be don't build more housing. Yeah, I mean, the thing I will say about this also is that another answer is uh, <laughs> like, you know, I, we, we, we've covered this on the show to like the other part of this. If, if you don't want a city that's just like absolutely horrific, you need to have a strong tenants movement and mm-hmm. you need to you need to have a tenants movement that's willing to move beyond things like rent control and move towards like actively like fighting to seize buildings from like from developers and that's a, that's a thing that's happening. Like there, there are places where people are doing this. It can be done. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah, like that. I, I don't know. Like, I, I, I feel like. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go into my entire <laughs> thing on the sort of Nibby Yimby debate other than saying that, like, you, increasing the power of tenants will give you a bet. Will, will, will give you the best options. Yes, very, very much. Uh, tenant unions are good. Um, yelling at the Biden administration is good. Destroying golf courses is good. And abortion rights are good. Yeah. And go fight for these things and things that aren't elections, because every once in a while, an election will give you a result, which is the worst person on Earth has been replaced by a slightly better person. And, you know, I, I do like to not be ruled by the worst person on Earth, but... The the, got- the 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 ideal political situation is the one where we're not we're like people cease to rule over us. So yes, no, you gotta you gotta do the non electoral work alongside the electoral work. Um, you can't just be relying on elections to make things better. You gotta be pushing for it all the time. Yeah. Well, I say, yeah, I I am much softer on electoral work, but oh yeah, no, 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 Mia, Mia would rather Mia would rather than everyone doing electoral work start doing uh, better things with their time in her eyes. Yeah, but if 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 you are going to be a person who does electoral stuff, like it doesn't it doesn't matter what electoral victories you win if you are just not doing anything that isn't electoral, because yes. the actual sort of politi- the actual composition of political power in the city. And the sort of the, 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 the city's class composition, the balance of forces between sort of like, you know, I mean, things like between unions and employers, right? Like directly between workers and between employers. There, there are lots and lots and lots of things that are very, very important, even if you are an electoralist, that are mostly decided outside of almost, almost entirely decided outside of the ballot box. And if you don't take that into account and you try to just run like – the most well-engineered political campaign, uh, you're going to end up like the 2016 Democrats. Democrats. Yeah. Yeah. No, everything that Mia just said. And yeah. Yeah. I hope you've enjoyed the longest amount of time. I will ever be (laughs) caught talking about an election that doesn't involve a coup. (laughs) Um, Yeah. This, this happened here. Uh, yeah. Thanks. Thanks again for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on, and all of you go happen to someone.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. My chickens just come to me. You, you, go, you don't catch them, you, uh, you just have Hooks to. Them. Yeah. It's love, not, not coercion. Uh, that is how you catch a chicken, um, which is not mm-hmm. what this podcast is about, is it, Robert? No, it's not. No, unfortunate. Uh, we're doing the Catching Chickens episode next week, but today uh, we are joined by three guests. We have Ava, uh, Mo, and Wode, and they're going to be talking to us about solidarity with anarchist prisoners and how you can do that and why you should do that and why people have been doing that for a long time. So would you guys like to introduce yourselves and just tell us your names and any relevant uh, affiliations and your pronouns? I'm Ava, she, her. Um, I've been working with June 11th for about a handful of years now and been doing prisoner support for almost 10 years now. Uh, I'm Maura Melter-Cohen. Everyone calls me Mo. My pronouns are they or Mo, and I'm an attorney and I do a lot of work with uh, political prisoners, uh, people facing politically motivated prosecutions and incarcerated people who need gender affirming care. Excellent. Yeah, it's very important stuff. Hey, my name is Wode. I use he, him pronouns. Um, I've been involved in uh, prisoner support for 25 plus years and enjoying anarchist-related activities for longer than that. So I think if we start off with uh, perhaps explaining like 
what June 11th is and sort of the history of it, why, why this is a day that people can show their solidarity with anarchist prisoners, that would be great. And just wonder if you want to talk about that. Yeah, so June 11th um, started as a day of solidarity with Jeff Lors um, when he was serving um, like a 20, 20, 22 year sentence for um, torching some SUVs. But eventually he was able to get his sentence shortened and he got out. And at that point, Marius Mason and Eric McDavid were in prison with 20 year sentences um, for um, eco sabotage activity or in Eric's case, being um, entrapped for such. And so it eventually changed to be about Marius and Eric after um, Jeff was released. And then Eric McDavid also got out of prison. And since then, it expanded to uh, all long term anarchist prisoners. I wonder, like, obviously, we're in like April now, so people have a few months before June 11th, and they might be like, interested in doing this. They might not know any people directly that are incarcerated, or they might not have had any experience with that sort of in their close circles. So, like, if we start with like how people can show solidarity, like, to incarcerated people, I think that would be great. And so, are there like things that people can do? How can they do that? Like, so that people, I guess, people who are incarcerated can can hear them or hear from them. Yeah, I mean, writing letters is kind of the classic go-to. Um, there's also ways to communicate digitally or over the phone with people locked up. Um, you know, putting money on someone's books goes a long way. Everything is extremely overpriced in prison and and monopolized by the corporations that provide that, those services. Um, but I mean, if if you're looking for people you have stuff in common with or particularly political things, um, kind of carrying on the struggle and including their name in those activities um, is part of that. And and if you are in communication with them, um, talking to them about those things, getting their input and uh, helping them feel included in those struggles goes possibly the longest way. Yeah, I think that's such an important point because like, when you're talking about someone, for example, who's been like entrapped by by the feds or whatever law enforcement agency was responsible for it, like you're you're talking about a, a strategic pattern that the state uses to clamp down on resistance, and the the efficacy of that strategy is entirely determined by their ability to kind of break people and to to break movements by both making people suspicious of each other and by you know locking up and and damaging the the people who are kind of most prone to action and i i think doing stuff like this like not only helps kind of heal those the distrust that is inherently planted by the state when they do stuff like this but also helps the the people who are kind of most targeted and who have suffered the most for the cause not feel like they're swinging in, in the wind, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think it helps mitigate the fear of repression and arrests and especially things like terrorism enhan- enhancements. Yeah. Um, when people know that like they're not they're not going to be alone when they're in prison, even if it is for decades, like there's going to be people supporting them and writing them and fundraising for them and like including them in their projects like the entire time. Yeah, I, w- I would say too that um, anytime a, a movement or something becomes more effective, um, they become the focus of the state tends to sharpen on them. And and the um, a lot of the prisoners that have been supported around the June 11th Day of Solidarity were involved in environmental and animal rights 
uh, activities um, that were particularly effective and, and particularly destructive in a positive sense, um, particularly like the ALF and ELF actions of the 90s, um, brought on this very intense repression um, in the early 2000s that came to be called the Green Scare. Yeah, kind of our um, our theme for this year is that that repression like doesn't work. All these like movements and struggles and act activities continue, um, even despite that kind of repression. Like there's still you know activity um, in defense of the earth and animals um, and land defense, and there's still like um, really militant queer self defense, and there's still a lot of like a ton of activity against police and against uh, racist police violence and murder. And like as much of those as much as those things are repressed, like it doesn't stop them and they just keep getting stronger. I think the only thing I would add to that is one of the most important things about doing political prisoner support or prisoner support in general mm -hmm. is that um, the state really does work to criminalize um, politically motivated behavior and politically motivated beliefs, which functions pretty effectively to distract from the central message of social movements, whatever social movement it may be, and providing prisoner support and continuing to um, keep people who are in prison apprised of those struggles, continuing to engage in those struggles, um, can really function to refocus on that central message, um, even despite the fact that state repression is a very effective drain on movement resources and a very effective distraction from movement messaging. That is super important. Like if we look at like the movement for black lives or the George Floyd uprising, however we want to kind of phrase it, like the speed and uh, like severity with which the state kind of cracked down on that and, and attempted to infiltrate it, attempted to create suspicion, attempted to create fear um, was like I think most people listening might be familiar with that, even if they're not familiar with the the Green Scare or like previous incidents. And it's not um, just like I know we have people listening in other countries. This is not just a America thing, right? Like British cops literally fucking married people uh, in the like in the early two thousands as part of their undercover situation. Um, one of them also went to clown school, which is funny. Uh, that <laughs> no, attempt that, to, that is a charming story. Yeah, it's Don't one of the. Don't thank you not to refer to the police academy that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess they all went to clown school in a sense. Yeah, so yeah, we'll do a, we'll do a long promise clown block episode one day. Mo, I know you uh, have some insight into Mario's case uh, as his lawyer, right? So, could mm -hmm. you explain a little bit about? about that case so people can understand like how a politically motivated prosecution works in the uh, like, sure. supposed justice system that we have. Uh, so just to clarify, I represent Marius now and I do advocacy for him while mm -hmm. he is confined. I was not his criminal defense attorney. So Marius was um, active uh, in the very late 90s and early 2000s. Um, and the investigations um, that were going on at that time in the state repression uh, that was focused on um, the movements against environmental degradation was deep and concerted and went on for many, many years. And that's sort of what we refer to as the green scare. 
uh, right, the criminalizing of environmental movements. And I, I talk about criminalized behavior and criminalized identity a lot. So I'm actually just going to take a second and explain what please I mean do. by that. Yes, please. So the criminalization of identity refers to where law enforcement and the state are policing, monitoring, targeting uh, identity rather than unlawful conduct. And the criminalization of belief, similarly, it refers to the state targeting people on the basis of their beliefs rather than on the basis of unlawful conduct. So movements, social movements, there's a very long and well-documented history of social movements um, being criminalized by the state, even in the absence of any unlawful behavior. Mm -hmm. So the movements against environmental degradation um, were heavily policed, targeted, infiltrated, um, and many federal grand juries and um, setups and entrapments and um, successful prosecutions stemmed from that criminalizing of environmental movements. And Marius's case was among those. Um, Basically, the state managed to turn Marius's former partner into an asset um, and effectively charged him, prosecuted him for um, several acts of um, politically motivated uh, destruction of property, all of which were calculated not to harm human beings. He pled guilty and was sentenced in 2009 had his had the offenses to which he pled guilty not been perceived as politically motivated he would have probably gotten about 7 years because the prosecution uh argued that his um behavior was politically motivated which i mean i think is true um yeah <laughs> he was um hit with a terrorism enhancement which increased the severity of his punishment um, on the basis of um, how serious an offender he was then deemed to be. The prosecution asked for 20 years. The judge imposed 22. So here's an example of how um, beliefs are criminalized. At his sentencing, the judge and the prosecution both invoked and referred to what I think most of us would view as really unremarkable political behavior in ways that really cast it as very sinister. And so Marius's contact with people who were on his support committee, who were engaged in various kinds of civil disobedience about which Marius likely knew nothing, was cast as Marius being in continued contact with people engaged in crimes, which was a violation or would have been a violation of his bond conditions. And on the basis of that claim that Marius was violating his bond conditions by being in touch with these people, who again were engaged in what I think most of us would see as completely unremarkable uh, civil disobedience, constitutionally protected political behavior. This was one of the bases on which the judge 
imposed this sentence that was even longer than the prosecution had asked for. And there's a number of other examples of this kind of criminalization of of routine political behavior, one of which is very significant, which is that when Marius finally went to prison, he started a reading group. And based on the content of the books that they were reading, um, he was transferred from a lower security facility pretty close to his family to a facility, uh, and not just a facility, but a particular wing of a facility, which was the administrative segregation unit at FMC Carswell in Texas, which was much, much farther from his family and um, was involved all kinds of extremely stringent conditions that I would argue were um, First Amendment violations. So you know, we see not only the the really intense surveillance and targeting of social movements, but the really disproportionate punishments and sort of retaliatory behaviors all the way down, all the way from investigation to through to incarceration and conditions of confinement. That's atrocious, obviously. So I wonder, like, when he um, received those, like, maybe perhaps we should first explain what a terrorism enhancement is in case people aren't familiar. It is a what's called a sentencing enhancement, and it allows, it authorizes, or in some cases requires a judge to impose a harsher sentence for behavior that's intended to, um, I don't remember what the exact language is, um, but it's it imposes a harsher sentence for uh, unlawful acts that are intended to intimidate or coerce the public or um, public institutions. Okay. So that, that's what increased, like nearly tripled that sentence in that mm-hmm. case. Yeah. And was that specifically yeah. like because he'd expressed like anarchist ideas or just because it was like his actions were in sort of furtherance of the Earth Liberation Front kind of goals? I think it was explicitly because it was an an ELF associated okay. action. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was part of this crackdown on on environmental yeah. movements. It, it's similar to what we're seeing in Atlanta right now. Like right down to Very the terrorism much. enhancements. Mm-hmm. The, what we're seeing in Atlanta right now is actually a little bit more astonishing just in terms of first of all, we're not really seeing it necessarily a terrorism enhancement. There is a statute that criminalizes what they are calling domestic terrorism. It operates similarly, right? There's a predicate act. And then if it's politically motivated, you know, so you could, for example, potentially have something like politically motivated trespass, (laughs) right? Uh, Or politically motivated graffiti. um, And they could charge it as domestic terrorism, the enhancement is a, is a sentencing mechanism, okay. but um, it certainly is not new. What we're seeing in Atlanta, I would say, is it is remarkable, um, but it is a continuation of the same kind of targeted policing um, efforts to chill social movements, efforts to disrupt uh, social movements, to isolate people, to fractionate uh movements. Um, It's the same kind of thing that we have seen um, really since the beginning of policing in this country. And that makes a lot of sense when you consider like the the role of the police within the state and and the goals of some of these social movements, right, which 
we probably don't have to explain that in detail for people to understand what's going on. So, like, with these people facing, you mentioned a couple of the other people who who had faced political prosecutions and, and were incarcerated and then had their sentences reduced. Um, maybe we could explain like how that was able to happen, right? Because that's obviously like a desirable outcome. I don't know the like the legal things that happened for that, mm-hmm. but it was like a it was like in the courtroom kind of a solution. Okay, yeah. Okay. I'm curious, just kind of in general, since you've all had more contact with these folks who are incarcerated and have been kind of uh, the victims of this this state violence, when they talk about like what is kind of meaningful to them in terms of outside connections, in terms of like, you know, what we're talking about here, um, what kind of stuff do they bring up as like having a positive impact on on their mental health, on their kind of ability to endure what they're what they're going through? First, I would say that communication is a big thing, like being able to talk to people, to write with people. Um, and, you know, a, a long term, like regular correspondence is great, but even just like little messages of solidarity can be really meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um Material support is always huge. Like that's going to make somebody's time a little bit better if they can get stuff off a commissary, you know, buy enough stamps, all those things. Um, But a thing that I hear a lot is like people want to see the the projects and the struggles that they're involved in continue. Um, So if that's like defense of the earth, if that's against the police or or whatever it is, like people like to see that. Cause it's, you know, it's not just about their own case, but yeah, about those movements that they come from and, um, or if somebody's, you know, radicalized inside these things that they have, um, committed to and, and been restricted from participating in, in a huge way, not entirely, uh, but, you know, people like to see, to see that continue and see, um, see victories, see like creative attempts and, um, things like that. That makes a lot of sense. I think, um, so for people like I know, uh, like I'll, I'll sometimes write to incarcerated people for uh, like various things, uh, and it, it can be quite difficult to like to work out the process of doing that, um, and, and it can be especially difficult. Um, it was especially difficult during during like the the worst of the COVID kind of lockdowns and such. Um, like you couldn't. I was trying to write to a guy in one federal uh, in, in Terre Haute and. Uh, they wouldn't let the person email me because they claimed that the keyboard was like a high touch surface and this, yeah, right. Like, um, which people were getting COVID in, in this facility all the time. Uh, but how, how would folks go about, like, let's say they wanted to, to write to Marius and just say like, um, you know, we wanted to express the solidarity and, and say sucks that this is happening to you or whatever. How would they go about doing that? There's a couple of things that are specific with Marius that I, I will want to, tell you, but you can go to, if you Google inmate locator BOP, you can search uh, Marius's name or the name of any uh, other prisoner. And you'll basically end up with, it'll show you their information, uh, including where they are confined. And you can usually click on the name of the facility and it will take you to the website for that facility and show you um, how to send mail to the prisoner. Um, There's also, if you go to nycabc.wordpress.com or any of the other uh, Anarchist Black Cross websites, um, 
NYC ABC is my home chapter, so that's the one I'm familiar with. Um, but if you go to the Anarchist Black Cross websites, there are um, zines and I think a whole list um, that is pretty well updated of all of the anarchist political prisoners and instructions on how to write to them. One of the things that is on those websites that I would highly encourage you to take seriously uh, are instructions about how to responsibly write to people who are uh, under increased monitoring and surveillance while they are being confined because um, retaliation against prisoners, even for things that the prisoners themselves have not done, is very commonplace. And so if somebody, while we very much want to make sure we keep in touch with people and give them news of the outside world, including news about their social movements. One thing that can happen is that those letters simply will not be delivered. And another thing that might happen is that the prisoner themselves may uh, face disciplinary consequences formally or informally, um, just as a result of having been the intended recipient of that news. So, you know, um, I would say, as I often say, discretion is the better part of valor in yeah. this instance. I think you have to have a, a kind of a, a first do no harm attitude about this, where like at, at at the end of the day, regardless of like your anger or your desire to talk about, you know, certain uh, things, your, your primary concern here has to be not making things worse for somebody who's already in a terrible situation. Yes. And, and I would also like to point out that prisoner mail is monitored. Oh, yeah. And so yeah. Yeah. among yeah. other things, you might be making things worse for yourself. Yeah. Um, so I would be cautious and circumspect about what you write to people whose mail is being read. Um, the other thing is with respect to Maris in particular, unfortunately, mm -hmm. in order to get mail to him, you still have to dead name him. Um, and if you want to hear more about that particular set of struggles, I'm happy to talk about it. But suffice it to say for now that if you go to supportmariusmason.org, there should be some instructions about how to write to him. And I'll make sure that the support group puts up clear instructions. But unfortunately, you do have to put his dead name mm -hmm. on that envelope or it will not get to him. It's extremely frustrating, but... Yeah. yeah, it can be really annoying, especially if you're trying to look for somebody in, um, using the locator and it has a gender notifier and, and then it's not the correct gender yeah. notifier. And it, yeah, um, that can be difficult. Uh, but like, yeah, it's, a, it's an effort worth making, right? And it, it really can help someone who's going through a difficult time. Yeah, and people do have really specific interests apart from movement work as well. Um, and you know, Marius paints, he sent me this incredible, he sent me a number of paintings over the years. Mm -hmm. um, I have one, actually, that I, I think I shared with you earlier, yeah, of Sacco exactly. and Vanzetti that he made. Um, he sent me a really great portrait of Jimmy Page once. Um, <laughs> he also recently sent me a beautiful scarf that he had knitted or crocheted, I guess. Um, people have hobbies, people have interests, and they're happy to talk about those things as well. Yeah, that's what makes us like a whole person, right? And I think having a little bit of that helps you to keep that little part of yourself in in a, in a what could be a difficult yeah. place. So yeah, hopefully yeah. people can send crochet letters. Should we have some keen crochet listeners? 
this is probably the part of the podcast where we stop and uh, make ourselves amenable to capitalism by doing an ad break. I wonder, like, what can people do on June 11th? Right, right. Obviously, like, people should keep on this ongoing correspondence. I think that's really important. And I was speaking to someone from the Leonard Peltier, Free Leonard Peltier group the other day, and I know a lot of people write to Leonard Peltier, and, like, I know that that's a great source of, like, strength for him, especially as he's, like, aging in prison. I was wondering what people could do on June 11th, like, to sort of further discourse, spread the word, take actions to solidarity. What kind of things do people do? June 11th activities, you know, actions and solidarity uh, really run the gambit. Um, you know, it's been very popular to have like a barbecue or a benefit show, um, things to raise money. And then there's um, actions that more have more in common with um, why some of these people were incarcerated. Uh, and it, like if you check the website, June11.org, there's a list of um, previous actions that people have taken and the whole... Uh, gambit of activities that you know people have participated in. Um, I know at, with the um, revitalization of of this as like an international day of solidarity, um, there was an interest in trying to uh, think outside the box more. You know, it's it's difficult to like no one's going to reinvent the wheel, or you know maybe they, that's as much as they're doing. But um, but there is. A variety of different activities and last year's theme was sort of like doing something different than you might normally do to just diversify what is happening one of my dreams for june 11th is for it to be an opportunity for you know our movement prisoners to be integrated into other things so it's you know it doesn't have to just be oh this is like the prisoner support activity or like we're just going to write letters but you know people do things like art shows, um, like Mo mentioned, like a lot of people paint, a lot of people write poetry and to integrate that into like, maybe already have like, you know, a, a community around poetry readings or something like that. Um, and just to bring that into, into whatever like little corner of the world or whatever kind of activities that we're already involved in for these things to like reference each other, right? Like we reference um, our prisoners and they can reference um, these things that are happening outside that are like integrating them. One of the things that uh, since I've been involved, a lot of times we try to elicit or solicit um, statements from uh, the people we represent. I, I have been to a number of really wonderful June 11th activities that have included an art show, a number of punk shows in various people's Shocking. basements. <laughs> um, and I think as just an individual, I mean, first of all, I think it's a great opportunity to to do community building, um, to do letter writing. Um, but I, I think it's also something that even if you are, you know, relatively isolated, you know, you can just make a commitment today. I'm going to send five bucks to somebody's commissary. Um, yeah, I think I was looking back at one of Marius's previous June 11th statements, and one of the things he referred to was um, a, a, a civil rights attorney that he'd worked with um, was asked, you know, um, what does the movement need most? And um, he responded, everything is everything. 
Um, meaning, you know, anything, any advocacy that you do in one area will redound to the benefit of all of the rest of us and all of the other areas. And I, I have found that to be true. And I have found that specifically to be true um, even in terms of the legal effects of um, doing advocacy for Marius has had really huge benefits for other trans folks who are in prison, who I've represented. And then doing advocacy for those folks has had really incredible benefits for Marius. Um, so, I mean, I think it is materially the case that you know, you struggle where you are, you do what you can on June 11th or any other day. Yeah. And, you know, you move the needle. Yeah, I think that's very, it's well said. Yeah, absolutely. You know, June 11th is specifically um, for people who have long sentences. And that's really about like the increased risk of just kind of like falling to the back burner as there's new like waves of struggle and, um, you know, new emergencies and, and crises all the time. This is an opportunity to like, um, really take a moment to um, to really focus on that memory. Um, and so I hope with June 11th, we can like kind of build um, bridges like generationally, you know, like I wasn't really around when Marius, you know, during the green scare and Marius got arrested. And it's something that I learned about and got involved in later. Um, and I hope that, you know, with new people that we meet and new people who like we share projects with, um, we can tell them about um, our prisoners. And also, you know, where where I happen to live, there's occasionally I meet somebody who used to know Marius from, you know, 20 years ago. And so kind of in both directions, like into the past and into into the future, like, yeah, just trying to spread awareness about these people. Yeah, I think that's super yeah, important. Yeah, I, I think it's it's so important to look at this as part of a long struggle and that's you know what, what you and moira are both talking about in terms of it's it's building connections it's um it's kind of this like the sedimentary layer uh uh that that creates the actual foundation for for positive change and you know we, we have there's this kind of hollywood brain thing i think we all have where we're we get bent out of shape when when change doesn't kind of come and in the the form of these kind of calamitous moments and and uh, kind of culminations of struggles and stuff. But it, it's it's it, you know the the process of winning is the process of like part of it is the process of showing up for the people who are um, uh, uh, casualties, you know, who are being um, who are being who who are suffering the most for it and part of it is kind of the 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 way in which that allows you to kind of build networks of solidarity that are are the necessary foundation for continuing the struggle. Absolutely. I I would say that in the years that I've been doing this work, one of the most important parts of it is being really consistent uh in showing up for the people who are uh who are being horrendously punished. Because that's the only way that everybody understands that they will be taken care of, um, right? Um, but speaking of winning, I do have um, an update, if you have a second, on yeah. another June 11th prisoner, Please. Eric King. Um, yeah. From my beloved colleague, Sandy Freeman, who represented him successfully uh, recently and got a not guilty verdict 
for him after he was charged with assaulting a corrections officer, which is, um, I mean, if you know anything about federal indictments, a, a magnificent coup. Um, so Eric currently has a Klan Act conspiracy and Bivens lawsuit pending against more than 40 state defendants. Uh, his team is trying to achieve release from the ADX via a writ of habeas corpus. He's not currently getting access to communications, visits, or programming, uh, but he is still strong and resilient, and um, his recent victories are an object lesson in the fact that we really can fight back and win. Um, please donate to his support fund and please uplift what is happening because this is the future for anti-fascists in the Bureau of Prisons. Um, nevertheless, we do continue to struggle and sometimes even to win. And I think our stories of triumph um, are not frequently enough told. And so one thing that we could do this June 11th is try to gather all of those stories and make sure that those stories do get told. I think it's really important, like you said, to see these little victories and like not to see it as distinct from a broader struggle. Like if we want to do anarchism and build ways of taking care of each other outside of the state, then we need to take care of people who are victimized by the state. Uh, and like this is part of doing that. We're proving we can do it by doing it, right? Um, and like Robert said, like we're not going to storm the Winter Palace necessarily. Yeah. Like, <laughs> We can build our power in different ways, and this is a way of doing that. I'm thinking of like more international like cases. I know, for instance, that um, where I come from, the British government fucking loves to put uh, people who volunteered to fight for the YPG in prison, or their parents if they send them money for food. Which, uh, yeah, great country. But I know that like all over the world, like in, in Spain and Catalonia where I've lived, like this is a thing too. So um, are there any other like international cases that you want to sort of draw attention to? Sure. Um, currently right now, Alfredo Cuspido in Italy is, uh, has been on hunger strike since October against the particularly isolating and particularly repressive 41 East prison, uh, what he calls a non-life in there. It's a, a prison that was, Primarily used against mafia bosses, but, um, you know, in the classic state misinterpreting uh, anarchism has mm -hmm. considered Alfredo a leader and, and, and particularly <laughs> and so locked him away um, without access to almost any means of communication. And, uh, and so he's, he's had a lot of health problems as a result of this. You know, he was originally locked in um, for shooting a nuclear executive in the knee. Uh, after some particularly callous remarks from him following the Fukushima disaster. And, um, and that nuclear uh, company is, has ties with, um, uh, like, the, you know, the larger war machine, the um, manufacturing of, of weapons for war. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, he's caught other charges while being in prison for previously alleged activities, including just being an anarchist, essentially, kind of what you talked about. Um, straight criminalizing uh, political sensibilities. Um, you know, Italy has been doing that. Chile has been doing that um, previously against people like uh, Monica Caballero and Francisco Solar, who have um, been in and out of prison for years now and are currently facing 
more charges for uh, allegedly um, sending bombs to uh, police training facilities and such um, down in Chile. And uh, in your own England, uh, Toby Schoen is someone who got out um, recently um, after being receiving terrorist charges uh, for allegedly being involved in a, an anarchist website called 325 um, and, and financing terrorism through like accepting donations for their work and, and things like that. Um, but he did not get convicted of that. He only got convicted of uh, some minor drug charges. And so he's been released to kind of a halfway house now, but they um, continue to try to mess with his terms of release uh, because of his politics, because he's an anarchist and unrepentant, um, they continue to try to mess with him, essentially. On the website, June11.org, there's um, a page with information about um, a lot of prisoners, both in the U.S. and internationally. Um, you know a little bit about them. Uh, most of them has their address. If there's a support site with more information, that's linked to it as well. Okay. That's a good place for people to look. Anything else you guys wanted to get to to discuss like issues uh, for incarcerated anarchist people, or I guess other ways to support incarcerated people. I guess I would like to remind your listeners that all prosecutions are political uh, and that people who are locked away in, you know, the cages that are the federal facilities and the state and local and county facilities are all um, dealing with the same kinds of isolation and deprivations and um, a lot of them have even less support than um, some of our long-term anarchist political prisoners. And so, um, you know, I I understand this is a, a program about June 11th, and of course I want to uplift June 11th, but I would also like to suggest that to whatever extent you can get involved in just prisoner support. Um, yeah. I think that more support for more prisoners is always a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I agree. Be in the streets in whatever, by whatever means, um, fighting the society that makes prison a necessity is, is the longer game. Right. Yeah. You know, related to, to what Mo was saying, I wanted to uh, mention another long-term anarchist prisoner, Michael, Michael Kimball, um, who is in Alabama and, just thinking about like how how supporting him has resonated to like so many other people in prison in, in Alabama, um, like the way that he has been able um, through the support of, you know, some of his friends on the outside, then support like so many other queer people that he's with um, in Alabama and been able to like collectively organize and like share radical history. Like, you know, they have a have a role in it, too. And, and our support for them can like resonate far beyond just an individual yeah i think that's a great point yeah and other things to mention um we are we have a fundraising goal for marius this year of twenty five hundred dollars um we're trying to get some bookstores on board to you know have some june 11 stickers donate a little bit of money um so go to your local bookstore info shop red space etc nice is there any any other like resources you guys wanted to plug social media is anything that people can follow to find out um you can follow marius's support on twitter at at support marius um there's also an instagram that i think is at support marius mason uh i would also like to plug the concept of not talking to cops (laughs) smart 
June 11th also has some social media presence. It's really only uh, regularly active on, on the Mastodon account. And it's just uh, at June 1 1, at June 11th. Yeah. That was fantastic. Thank you very much, guys. Really yeah, appreciate your thank time. Thank you all. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, You can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Hello, podcast fans. Uh, It's just me today. It's just James. And we're doing another episode about the border. I'm joined today by Emmett and David from the Borderlands Relief Collective. And we're going to talk a little bit about people doing mutual aid on the border, uh, the situation on the border, and for those of you who live a long way away from it, and uh, a sort of pretty shitty thing that Border Patrol did to some supplies which were left out on the border uh, earlier this month. Um, so, yeah, Emmett and David, if you'd like to sort of introduce yourselves and explain a little bit about the roles you play, that would be great. Hey there. Um, happy to be here. Uh, my name is Emmett. I am uh, splitting my time between being a geochemist uh, at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, uh, being a PhD student, and uh, trying to reconcile what it means to be uh, living in this borderlands and uh, being a part of a community that is uh, partially criminalized, uh, depending on who you are, where you come from, and also 
uh, what it means for you to seek safety and freedom in your life. So uh, I work in several organizing spaces, uh, trying to shut down uh, different detention centers, um, as well as supporting uh, folks just make ends meet in San Diego and also supporting um, people uh, keeping their lives and and staying alive um, in this extreme uh, border borderlands that we, we live on. Uh, hey, my name's David. Um, my job, I work as a, a surgeon. Uh, I've been living in San Diego for about 10 years and I've been doing um, humanitarian um, volunteer work uh, in the borderlands, which we call doing water drops for something like um, uh, six years. Uh, got started with uh, border angels and also did volunteer work with Border Kindness. Um, highly recommend that organization. And um, more recently, have been doing water drops in a, in a mountainous area between San Diego and TJ uh, with friends. And we just recently uh, found a name for our our group and uh, it's Borderlands uh, Relief Collective. Great. Yeah. And I think maybe, I, I think if people think of San Diego, they think of like the zoo and, and maybe uh, SeaWorld. Uh, and at the beach and all that kind of shit. So, like, can you explain what it's like? I've spent a lot of time in in the area where you guys do water drops. Can you explain what it's like and why it's such a difficult area to pass through for people who are trying to move north? Well, yeah, San Diego, as you said, people uh, think of the beach, but actually, I think uh, someone told me that San Diego County has some of the most diverse uh, kind of ecosystems of any county in the uh, in the so-called uh, USA. We have uh, high mountains where it snows when it gets cold out. Uh, we have low deserts where it routinely exceeds 100 degrees Fahrenheit in the summertime. I mean, 120 degrees Fahrenheit uh, in the summertime. Um, and as far as uh, the geography of migration, it really uh, goes back to, you know, it's a direct consequence of federal border policy. I think uh, many people will be familiar with the term uh, prevention through deterrence, which is sometimes elaborated as uh, prevention of migration through environmental deterrence. And the whole concept is going way back to uh, Clinton administration, the areas of the border near cities like San Diego were increasingly militarized with high border fence, intense patrol by armed officers, and increasingly recently electronic surveillance uh, with the idea of relying on the extremely harsh terrain of the deserts and mountains to form a kind of a natural deterrence. But they quickly found out within, within you know, basically the first year or so of that federal policy that uh, numbers of people crossing the border did not decrease. However, deaths skyrocketed. 
and that's something we understood um you know uh, people in washington dc understood many many years ago uh, but the policy persists so the bottom line is people who are crossing the border from mexico to the usa often uh resort to crossing in the most remote and dangerous uh, areas of the border. So the area that we're going to be talking about, this uh, mountainous region between San Diego and Tijuana, literally uh, folks are going up and over the tallest mountain in the area, literally up and over the mountain of extremely arduous um, uh, walk. When we do these water drops, we're well rested, we hike all day, and uh, we come home exhausted. Uh, and we look at our our, our Gaia apps uh, and uh, find that we've only hiked a very small portion of the actual total journey. And we're always humbled uh, by just the resilience and determination of people who do this crossing. Yeah, it's, it's another thing I think people don't realize is that the, the amount of like physical uh, just difficulty that people have to endure coming here is immense. And of course, the reason that people are willing to take those risks is because it's not like they come from a place of safety, right? And it's not, it's not, uh, it's not like they, you know, the reason they're willing to take risks is because it's a risk. You know, being where they were is a risk. I think a lot of people will maybe have become more engaged with border policy during the Trump era. Certainly, like the like uh, legacy media narrative focused on the border very briefly. Like maybe it peaked around the midterms in 2018, I think, and then people have lost a lot of interest since then. So, for those of us who live on the border, it's remarkable how little has changed. I think well, maybe it's not particularly remarkable because I don't think we really expected it to. But uh, like, can you explain? what if anything has changed since 2021 and how things uh have sort of remained the same in many ways yeah i think it's a really good uh question and it brings up a lot of the political nature um or kind of skewed identity based uh conversations that exist in migration um and obviously, there's a lot of rhetoric that is quite hyperbolic around uh, the so-called morality of people who are uh, migrants in general, um, and then kind of categorizing certain people as worthy or not worthy of um, entrance into the so-called nation. Um, and Kind of furthermore, what does it mean for people to believe any of those narratives and then support them at a, at a federal political level? And as you're saying, um, during uh, Trump era, there was a lot of conversation in response to very, very hateful rhetoric uh, from Trump and the administration um, targeted at, at certain people, but not from a deep place of really understanding or characterizing the conversation in general or speaking by the fact that in San Diego, um, or in California at large, more than half of the farm workers who kind of create this 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 city that we are, or this the state that we are, and uh, support the very backbone of the fact that we're all still having our hearts beat, uh, are migrants, and that our economy at large, as well as just the fabric of our nation, is is based on migrants uh, and, and immigration. So for us to pick and choose what that looks like is 
not only missing the majority of the point, but is using as a talking piece, is really as a talking piece for uh, certain identities to feel vindicated, uh, to spend money and support certain for-profit corporations. Um, uh, for example, uh, Core Civic, one of the largest prison corporations, uh, private prison corporations in the in the country, uh, got $1.9 billion um, the previous year uh, from the federal government. And therefore, like you think about the connection between these enterprises uh, and stories about immigration are, are quite linked. Um, so I don't have all the statistics in front of me about how the specific number of, of crossings has changed or the population has changed, but um, on the whole, nothing has really changed as far as the need uh, goes. So thinking about four years ago, uh, what were the specific crises that were occurring um, that were causing people to seek seek safety in the United States? Um, maybe some specific situation have changed and others have arisen. Um, and as more and more people are coming to the United States fleeing from climate-related disasters, as well as ongoing stability, it, it, it's, it's not as if the U.S. has engaged in any real project to, to support people to begin with or understand the underlying causes. So from that standpoint, nothing meaningfully has happened from either administration to really understand or create policies that would support uh, anyone seeking safety or from making decisions that are uh, quote unquote aligned with U.S. best interests. Um, it's never been a part of the conversation. Um, it's more to basically uh, capitalize off of people in their suffering, um, whether, whether that be to the, uh, you know, to be a, a storyline that U.S. is is helping people or is is a savior of others or is trying to crack down on armed bandits or or uh, criminals who are crossing crossing this borderland. I think it is worth like. The, the core civic example is really interesting because Biden made a big thing of like talking about shutting down like quote unquote private prisons, but it's still very much like funding the same things when they're not for people who are citizens of this country or yeah, and for those of those who aren't fully versed in in kind of the the, the basic relationship between private uh, prisons and immigration, um there are is a relationship that uh, between uh, customs and border protection. Um, and uh, different prison corporations uh, to basically um, put people who are apprehended, who are not initially deported under Title 42, uh, in in detention uh, while their uh, their cases are ongoing and investigated um, for asylum um, or refugee status. Um, and so pr these prisons uh, make a profit and can basically. Uh, demand a certain money amount of money from the government per person who uh, is in within one of their their facilities, uh, and there's also a minimum that they will continually get money from the government regardless of whether the beds are filled. But they have an incentive to keep beds filled. So there is an economic relationship between these corporations uh, and the government to basically put more people in detention. So that's a huge underpinning of this of this whole conversation is. Who is getting money and how does it kind of further the certain aims of corporations, but also um, agencies that basically get a, a larger amount of federal funding uh, through apprehension of people? Right. Yeah. Like Biden has funded DHS more than Trump did. And like DHS's budget does Department of Homeland Security, of which Customs and Border Protection is a part um, and Border Patrol is a part of Customs and Border Protection. It's a giant pyramid of, of 
yeah, people putting people in prison. Uh, it, and it's also worth like reinforcing, I think, for people that like these people have done nothing wrong at the point in which they are in, incarcerated, right? Like they have obeyed all relevant laws and are yeah in, in conditions which we've decided are not befitting prisoners in the United States, but are okay for these people. Not that anyone should be incarcerated, uh, but yeah, there's still a two tier system. So can you explain a little bit about your efforts to do mutual aid and, and to like do a little bit of kindness on the border and make things a little bit better out there for people who are coming north? Yeah, what we do again, um, just um, is um, in collaboration with other organizations that have been around a long time, uh, a lot longer than we have, uh, Border Angels, Border Kindness in California, uh, No More Deaths in Arizona, many other organizations. Um, and it really, you know, boils down to we don't want people to die uh, on, you know, the trails uh, crossing through the borderlands. And that actually informs um, where we drop. Um, unfortunately, you know, all of our, our recent new routes that we supply, they're directly uh, because we know that people have died uh, in those locations or required uh, rescue. Uh, we work in very close relationship with other volunteer organizations that focus on search and rescue and search and recovery. Search and recovery, meaning recovering human remains of people who have died. So there's a number of outstanding organizations uh, that operate in uh, California, Arizona, Texas. These include Eagles of the Desert, uh, Armadillos, uh, many other organizations. Most of these are actually uh, made up of uh, volunteers who are first-generation immigrants, mostly from Mexico. Um, and so when people um, die or require rescue, we do find out for from our, our friends and, and comrades in these uh, SAR organizations, and we build um, water drop routes directly uh, around that knowledge. Um, so, yeah, it really boils down to yeah, we don't want uh, more people uh, to die uh, making making this uh, this journey. And so as far as what kind of supplies we leave, it's what we think may make a difference. We leave bottles of water, um, energy drinks like Electrolyte, Gatorade, and so on. Uh, cans of food with pop tops, all kinds of cans of fruit, beans, um, you know, uh, chili, whatever, you know, whatever we think people uh, may need. Um, of course, we tailor it based on the time of year um, in the mountains in the winter, gets freezing cold, lots and lots of rain. So we've been leaving waterproof ponchos, warm clothing. And the summer, of course, it gets scorching hot in the desert. People die of hyperthermia. They, they literally cook to death. Uh, that's where electrolytes come in handy, um, sun hats, bandanas, baseball hats, um, first aid kits. We, we leave um, kits full of medical supplies. Uh, and more recently, you know, um, just observing the kind of uh, used items that we find on the trail, 
uh, um, kids stuff, diapers, um, pacifiers, uh, you know, uh, we leave, you know, tampons, um, you know, that kind of stuff, um, uh, containers of infant formula. So it's a, it's a, it's kind of an iterative process, um, just leaving what we think people need. And, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of what we do. And just so folks are super clear, this is all like a, a an initiative among you and your comrades, right? Right. Then you're not supported by any like government entity. This, the government entity is kind of doing quite the opposite of what you're doing. Yeah, correct. We are all volunteers in the sense that yeah, nobody is uh, paid. We don't have any formal affiliations with any other NGOs, much less governmental organizations. Right. So maybe people are wondering, uh, they might have been familiar with the, the court case in Arizona, or they might not be like, uh, if, if what you're doing is considered to be like legal humanitarian aid or not. Are you comfortable talking about that? Yeah, so I think that's that's definitely a gray area that we find ourselves really occupying. Um, and I think that's a bit of this kind of propaganda machine is, is, is what does it mean to engage with somebody uh, who is uh, seeking safety and fleeing for their lives? There's a certain place where that's uh, touted, touted to be a wonderful thing uh, if you're uh, Catholic charities and are providing <laughs> beds um, and for example, I wanted to make that distinction between several kind of uh, charity organizations who do receive uh, federal money to to be engaged in this conversation versus versus grassroots mutual aid uh, uh, networks and communities who are doing this because it feels like it's part of their community's mission, their family's mission, or it means it's part of them being true to themselves and true to what feels uh, just in the in this in this very confusing world. So. What we're doing is very explicitly leaving humanitarian aids supplies that are potentially life-saving in areas where we know people need them. We are not having any specific or hands-on or person-to-person engagement uh, with, with anybody. Uh, so there, in, in Arizona, No Mas Muertes became part of a conversation about uh, providing uh, critical medical support. Um, and that was a court case that really tested the limits of what does it mean to be in this gray area. Um, and what was uh, really important from the nuances in that conversation were what constitutes aiding and abetting or so-called aiding and abetting um, of illegal immigration, which is basically, again, a very large gray area uh, between are you are you enticing people to cross? Are you being paid as a smuggler to cross? Are you doing something which is encouraging people to cross? Um, none of which was uh, activity that was engaged with Numas Muertes or us. Um, but uh, in their case, specifically providing medical aid uh, crossed the boundary and they were raided. Their, their, their camp and their um, impromptu field uh, tents where they were providing life-saving medical support uh, was, was raided. Um, and the, the kind of the finer points of that were that the, the outset being that the First Amendment protects humans in their religious freedom to practice um, whatever it be that furthers their religious uh, beliefs and, and a faith. And a very large point of, of, of their work was their affiliation and dedication to preserving human life, which, as we can imagine, for many folks, uh, listening to this or in, in in general, that is very core to their belief system. 
Um, and so there are very clear protections um, in the First Amendment uh, of, of preserving people's uh, right to practice their religion. So that was a case that that kind of that established a lot of what we're working under is these basic protections to be humanitarian aid workers um, following basic belief systems. What we're doing specifically is leaving supplies. So leaving supplies, the 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 most egregious thing you can you can basically uh, say about that is that we're littering, <laughs> or that we're <laughs> abandoning property. Uh, and so again, no mas muertes. And in these in this in this larger conversation, uh, it was established in the court that leaving humanitarian aid supplies that were with the intent of saving lives is not litter. So that was also a very big point, which is saying, no, we are not just kind of going walking down the street and throwing out your bottle in the, uh, in the back of your truck. This is specifically with the intent of saving lives. And the third place is that we are abandoning something in this in this area that would be constituted abandoned property. Um, and as we'll speak about maybe more in the future, uh, our supplies are consumed quite rapidly, um, and there is a, a statute in this in the state of is it is it abandoned property has to be it has to be left for more than 10 days to be considered abandoned property so even if we are leaving things in in these regions it is not considered abandoned property it's, it's been less than 10 days so basically i guess just to, to, to say that nothing we're doing is illegal from any standpoint and also um the the case in arizona kind of helped make a distinguishing uh make, make some distinctions between whether our activity is is also frowned upon in public land, <laughs> which yeah. it is not, because it is constituting uh, humanitarian aid in a place that is desperately needed. Right, and I think if folks go out to like, I mean, most people aren't going out to like Valley of the Moon or what have you, but like, if you want to look for abandoned stuff there, it's not hard to find, and uh, it's not you guys doing that, like shooting barrels or, or whatever that you know, like the, someone was shooting a barrel last time I was out there. Let's talk about how quickly those supplies are consumed, because I think, again, that will be like news to some people, right? Like you guys are out there every week and like how much stuff are you dropping and, and how quick does it go? Yeah, to tell you the truth, we're still we're still uh, finding out ourselves because every time we think we know the answer, we're surprised by how fast it's being consumed. But the bottom line is it's being consumed as fast as we can leave the supplies. So uh, Emmett and I and many other of the, the members of our organization, uh, Borderlands Relief Collective, we also are active in border kindness and in the past with border angels. And, and so uh, we're used to a certain rhythm of doing a water drop, circling back usually a month later. And we're happy if maybe uh, half of the supplies have been consumed. That's a good day. Uh, when we started doing water drops in this mountainous region, uh, first of all, we were just blown away by the evidence of heavy uh, foot travel. Uh, I mean, these are, even though you'll never find a hiker, a recreational hiker on these trails, they look like like established trails. They're worn in trails. And when we started doing these water drops, there's a there's just a river of discarded water bottles, uh, clothing, uh, food uh, wrappers, um, and just things that we have never seen before, that that amount of um, human uh, activity 
uh, literally on the top of a mountain where you never would think, why would someone cross over a top of a mountain to get from point A to point B? So like I said, we're still learning what the, the proper interval is. Some of these uh, locations that we drop, um, we come back a week later and they're pretty much 100% consumed. Um, so yeah, we really... It's become apparent, we have been having a lot of discussions that we're very eager in uh, trying to expand our number of volunteers, because the more we do this in this mountainous region, the more we learn uh, how pressing the need is. Um, so we're having a hard time just supplying essentially one path that goes up and over the mountain. And we know that this is just one of many uh, paths that are used by, by people in this, this region. So really, uh, uh, we're finding 100% consumption every week or two at most of our, our drop spots. Yeah. So if people did want to, we could just get that in here now, if people did want to help you and they're in the region, um, it's, would they be able to, is there a way they could reach out? Yeah, sure. We just, uh, like I said, we just came up with a, uh, our name after a, a fun uh, communal decision-making process. And uh, we just, a couple of days ago, uh, did our first post on social media. So if anybody's on Instagram, just search for Borderlands Relief Collective and click on, you know, the email and uh, send us a DM, get in touch. If you're anywhere near the San Diego, we'd love to talk to you um, and definitely would like to expand uh, the number of volunteers. So you spoke a little bit about like we spoke about this Arizona case, right, where people got raided. Um, I know you guys have also had some uh, less than stellar interactions with uh, CBP, Border Patrol specifically. Um, and they get really mad if I call it Customs or Border Patrol because it's Customs and Border Protection. Uh, so you guys had a thing, uh, was it last month now in March? Um, do you want to explain a little bit about what, what happened in the incident, first of all? Yeah, so uh, as part of our... So I think as we already talked about, we go out every weekend. And that's, again... We're all busy lives. Dave is literally a surgeon, and um, we're basically trying to find a time that we can get people together to go out there. So we pick the weekends, and we have a you know changing number of people who are able to be out there with us. So as one of our uh, normal water drop uh, weekends, um, a route that starts basically at a road um, that that is along the ridge of Otai uh, Mountain. We start hiking down the south side towards towards the towards the border, um, and uh, I've established uh, multiple routes along that path. And this one particularly is so slow going. Um, you only go a couple of miles, and it takes you uh, most of your Saturday um, because of how steep it is, um, the how thick the 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 brush is, um, and also kind of as Dave was saying earlier. Uh, even in the middle of day, day daytime uh, with hiking boots, uh, it's really treacherous. And um, we've we spent a lot of time making sure that we're safe in the process of, of going there ourselves. Um, so as we, we left our first drop and then a second and went down to our final drop and turned back uh, and started going back up the mountain. And we came to our second drop site. And as we arrived, uh, we found... Um, something that was 
kind of really hard to process uh, at first for us, which was that every single item that we had uh, purposefully put inside of a crate um, and we had uh, counted and we had uh, a left as we do um, was scattered and littered across the ground. Um, we had left uh, more than 20 liters of water and every single bottle of water was opened and dumped out and thrown indiscriminately uh, around this site. We had left, uh, again, something like 20 cans of food, uh, beans, tuna, uh, condensed milk, fruit, and every single can had been opened and had been its contents thrown uh, around the area. We had left bags of socks and hats, and those were covered in beans and fruit and again thrown into bushes so they could not be used. We had hand warmers um, because it's very cold um, and hand warmers are essential uh, to kind of keep mobility. Um, and every single one was diligently opened as if someone had really enjoyed taking time opening it and thrusting into the dirt. And that was something that was like so painful and just confusing, very demoralizing, as you can imagine, after just hiking that far. But more so, it, it felt so deliberate and, and hurtful. Um, and initially, we're, of course, wondering what had happened. Um, we've done this for several years, many years, and never had we seen something like this before. Um, and it became very apparent uh, that um, someone had deliberately destroyed our, our, our crate. Even the crate itself, this milk carton, was smashed in half. The bottom of it was uh, torn out. And that is something that's very hard to achieve. Milk cartons are not very light, uh, thin plastic. This was someone had had actively put a lot of force into smashing a milk cart so that nothing was left behind. Um, we, on the way down, one thing that I didn't say a second ago was that we had seen an agent on the trail, which was unique for us because normally they're just in their cars uh, yeah. with binoculars looking from the road. Um, so we had seen someone near the trail, uh, but lost track of them uh, earlier, and we had kind of put it out of our minds. Uh, so after this had happened, we had kind of put two and two together and were uh, wondering if this agent had followed us down the trail to this site. And then while we had left, stayed behind and destroyed the goods. It seemed like the beans were still drying and the fruit was still drying in the sunlight. So it hadn't have been too uh, too far from the time that we had dropped initially. Um, and this is at a moment that there was five of us and trying to figure out uh, what it meant for us to deal with this. Uh, several, two of us, including myself, um, raced ahead to try to see if we could interact with, uh, with whoever has up the trail, knowing that they couldn't have been too far away. Um, not with any specific plan other than just ask them what what did they do and why did they do that um just in the sense of outrage that the the sense of just like moral corruption um yeah. that someone would destroy this uh in a time that that the cbp as well as we know that people are are losing their lives um because of lack of access to these very goods that were destroyed yeah, so we raced raced back as fast as we could. It was about a forty five minute hike back up, um, and we were really breathless and almost at the kind of point of feeling sick to our stomachs because we were both outraged and also uh, hiked faster than we should have. Um, and just as we had gotten back to our cars, kind of giving up hope that we'd interact 
act with them. We saw two agents in their cars trying to pull away uh, and we flagged them down and got in front of them and uh, kind of motioned for them to come back so we could speak to them. Um, and I'm not saying we're the most savvy people, but we basically ran up to them and said, did you destroy these our, our supplies? To which they acknowledged that they did. Um, and only afterwards were we able to uh, get our wits together to start recording them. And as you'll hear in the audio, um, they acknowledged the fact that they knew where our site was and they acknowledged the fact that they regularly destroy goods. Um, and for us, the entire interaction was just so sickening. Um, first of it, after a while, there was five of them with their guns um, and their, their large guns out, uh, as well as their basic um, intention to use intimidation, their sheer numbers, as well as this kind of perverse authority they have as the sole kind of agents in charge of this public land. This is wilderness and BLM land in which they have no authority over us yet use this this sense of just power and ability to cause harm to minimize anybody else being able to to advocate for themselves so we tried to stop them from from doing that and and i kept asking them did you destroy our water and why did you do that and is that within your job description because there was something very clear to them to us that they didn't even know what their legality was they kept trying to deflect it the conversation saying oh yeah, migrants are leaving trash all the time and referring to people as illegal aliens with this kind of larger rhetoric of saying that like they're, they're they're trashing the mountainside like it's it's their fault um and as we repeatedly asked them did you destroy our water and they repeatedly said well have you seen have you seen what they do um and then kind of also saying well yeah we we try to clean things up we try to pick them up but 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 that specific site was too far so we just left it we just destroyed it and left it which as on the on the piggybacking on their conversation about the, the, this trash and that we're littering and they're accusing us of aiding and abetting illegal immigration, they basically have nothing left to say about what their actions meant. And without within their, their purview, their mandate of their jobs. Um, and it was an act you could tell they were uncomfortable with because they were not within their job description. And we asked for their supervisor. They said they're going to be on the phone supervisor. The supervisor never materialized, and we can only assume that they had a conversation with somebody uh, in a superior saying, "Back down, <laughs> what you're doing is 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 not correct, and don't engage further." Um, and since then, we've had a conversation with uh, with their superiors and with with CBP offices to the effect of saying that this was not within their job description, and this they do not condone this activity. So, um, kind of looking into that further, they were. Um, very much acting as individuals, but individuals within a culture of abuse and within a culture of of sabotaging humans' access to life-saving supplies. And that was nothing new to them. That is that they had nothing, they had never encountered somebody trying to oppose them for doing that.
But then it's going to pick it up and carry it to your car then. No, it's a long hike. Why would I do that? No, I'm like curious. I'm just it's okay curious. for you to record. Okay, cool. I'm gonna record this video. Well, okay. What is your jurisdiction to patrol within 25 miles of the border at 100 and, and, and look for pu what? public what? property? Look for abandoned property. Oh, we, oh, we fight about the property all the time. Illegal immigrants behind. And what do you do with it? So, what do you do with it? We destroy it. We try to clean it up because they leave. That's cleaning it up? That's one of the things we try to do. That was not cleaning it up. We either empty it out or we try to clean it up. That one was too far for us to bring it up. So, you decided to just trash the whole area? Like when, when they're funded and equipped and transported and armed by the state, then like it's that's not the same as individuals just because we've seen that in Arizona, right? Like people who are militias or what have you going out and sabotaging life saving supplies as well. But it's still a little different when you know we have to pay taxes for them to go destroy water caches. And, and these are people who regularly, as we've seen on multiple occasions, use helicopters to try to flush people out of uh, under a tree, that they fly within 30 feet of the ground and use the force of the rotors to force people out and up a hillside to waiting cars. So their use of money and their use of force is definitely central to the tactics. Yeah, yeah. Or uh, use helicopters to fire tear gas into Mexico. And it did a few years ago. But yeah, it's certainly, um, and that intimidation is like, if I think people, again, who don't live here might not be familiar with it. Like, uh, I've been out in down by the border with Kumeyaay people doing religious ceremony and had Bortat guys dressed like, you know, like Navy SEALs hanging out with AR-15s and plate carriers while people like burn sage and pray. It's, yeah, I mean, the militarization, if you somehow like, can't conceive to care of people dying in the desert, the, the militarization of the border still affects everyone here. And you know, it makes our lives less safe. Um, there's a crime thinks, crime thinks slogan that I always like to like use in these things, which is the border doesn't protect you, it controls you, which I think is, is kind of apt for this. So now that they've trashed your supplies, right, and you found out they weren't supposed to... Uh, I'm interested, like how going forward, does that mean that you can't use that route? You can't drop stuff there anymore because you're worried about it happening again or because you're worried about them hanging out there to intercept people who are using your like supply cash? On the contrary, um, we've learned from the examples of other people who have been doing this work. Um, uh, Emmett already uh, mentioned uh, No Mas Muertes, No More Deaths in Arizona, Dr. Scott Warren. We've learned so much from their example uh, where, you know, they were hauled into federal court and uh, won. Uh, and so uh, we've learned from from their examples of how to how to do this, uh, as well as within uh, here in California, the history of uh, border angels. So. Back a few years ago, um, Border Patrol was slashing gallons of water in the deserts of um, eastern San Diego County, as well as Imperial County. On one particular day, uh, the Border Angels volunteers found about 50 gallons of water slashed in the most violent way. And they knew it was Border Patrol. And so the way uh, Border Angels uh, responded was number one uh, to change their tactics, to start uh, dropping supplies uh, deeper in the backcountry uh, where the border patrol agents, uh, you know, it's rare to find um, 
a BP agent that's motivated enough to really hike hike for too too far away from their air conditioned vehicles in the summertime. Uh, so number one, they were going um, farther away from the roads and highways. Uh, to the actual routes that people are are walking. Number two, uh, they punched back uh, hard uh, in 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 public using social media. Back then, it was Facebook. You know, this is kind of be you know right when Instagram was getting popular. But just you know, getting the word out. And Border Angels is an organization that's been around for decades. They have a big following. The word spread. And just like many bullies, um, you know, they kind of back down if you get in their face um, uh, sometimes. <laughs> so, so that was our experience um, with this practice of Border Patrol slashing gallons in the desert with border angels. So when this, um, this crime occurred uh, on March 18th in the mountains, we knew we could not back down. Um, so we went back a few days later. That's when, as Emmett mentioned, we witnessed a Border Patrol helicopter for about an hour uh, flying about, you know, it seemed like, you know, 10, 15 feet off the ground, uh, really, really low using the, the rotor wash to flush a flush human beings out of the brush as if they were hunting animals. Um, and then we were back, you know, the, the next seven days later, after they destroyed the supplies, we went back with a good group. Number one, to clean up this uh, this shameful mess these these two border patrol goons left. Uh, we cleaned up all of all of that stuff, and we left probably what three times the amount of original supplies. And on our milk rates, uh, we actually left uh, laminated signs that addressed one by one all of the accusations that these uh, border patrol. Uh, agents um, tried to make against us. So the signs say, do not destroy, do not remove. This is not garbage. We are not littering. And this is not abandoned property. This is, these are humanitarian aid supplies um, protected by federal case law, the 1994 Protection of Religious Freedom Act, um and uh so on and so forth um so uh, we put those signs just prominently on the milk crates uh you know just to send a message that no we're not gonna back down we are going to leave supplies uh it is within our rights and it is in support of human rights to do this so of course we have to be strategic about this i mean there is the danger you know if we're always going back to the same place you know we're kind of you know, blowing up the spot as it were, you know, we're yeah. bringing heat to, to a route that's, that's needed by people making a crossing. And so we are, we are mindful of that. You know, we don't, we, we try to go to different places on different weekends uh, and not try to bring too much um, attention uh, to these paths. Yeah, that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, I wonder like if people are, I was just thinking for people to visualize the area. Is there a place they could look up on like Google Earth so they could see like where this kind of stuff is happening? Are you comfortable? You don't have to give like a, a exact location, obviously, but yeah, actually, I mean, speaking of you know, Google Earth, you you mentioned uh, Valley of the Moon. I mean, uh, Google yeah. Earth is impressive yeah. enough. 
anybody can just use Google Earth and zoom in all the way and just follow along the border and you'll find thousands of footpaths. Um, so yeah, it doesn't take, um, yeah, uh, like a, a much detective work to actually visually see these footpaths. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's real steep terrain, as Emmett mentioned. The last couple of times we've gone back to this spot where the two agents destroyed uh, the supplies. Uh, Emmett has actually brought a mountain climbing rope just to make certain sections easier where we're kind of rappelling down this dry waterfall. So really, really steep, uh, very loose uh, trails, um, very easy uh, to break an ankle. Um, and it just, uh, in that context, it really, it really hits you. Uh, we, we see so many um, uh, shoes and boots along the path and just have to kind of just pause and think well if this person lost their shoe if the if their the sole of their boot melted off and they're hours away uh from the nearest road what does it mean uh, how did they complete the journey did they complete their journey um so yeah a little bit hard to describe but i guess any yeah anybody who's i guess kind of familiar with with southern california steep steep mountains loose uh terrain kind of get the picture yeah yeah um yeah they can look up valley of the moon there's plenty of pictures of the uh very intimidating border fence that they have there it's like three foot high and rusty is there anything else that you guys wanted to address that you feel like maybe people don't uh the people should know about the border they don't about the work you do that that maybe is misunderstood yeah i guess I want to maybe bring up some of what it I think is is hard to convey to people who aren't there and kind of aren't um, connected to a community who is suffering uh, because of this, or, or who aren't maybe thinking along the lines of. Um, what it means to be a human in this space and actually be risking your life. Um, and coming up against helicopters and uh, a federally backed militia who is um, actively seeking to harm you. Um, none of us in our group are claiming any um, anything more than just witnessing um, what it means to be out there. But I guess what's been true for me and and in kind of my conversations with my community as a over the last couple of years, just trying to share this. There is there is so much pain that is being inflicted upon this landscape, and there is so much harm that is actively supported by our nation. While people are in some of the most intimate and painful moments of their lives, uh, leaving your home, whether it be in uh, another continent where you need to take a, a, plight, a flight over to make this crossing, or whether it be hiking through Central America, starting in South America for months before reaching this moment, or leaving your your, your family and your in your community closer to the to the to the border. This, these are moments that anyone who is alive <laughs> could feel the the pain of and the misery of having to abandon. All that you know 
um, and put yourself at the mercy of of the desert. And CBP's overly uh, aggressive and 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 harmful tactics. Um, so beyond all of the cases and the politics, I just I, I oftentimes as we're walking, just try to put myself in the position of someone who is who is making these decisions. And as Dave was saying, we're coming across people's clothing, food, underwear, places they've slept, and the amount of um, the, the poignancy of, of, of human desire to be safe, to to come to a place where they feel like their lives can be um, protected or that that choice is worthwhile is something that is so lost in the numbers and the amount of people who die or what happens after it. And so for us, I think making it not about your political beliefs or the asylum process, but just the actual uh, choices um, people are are, are half having to make very human decisions. Um, that is something that is kind of haunts us. Um, and the feeling that uh, all we can do is is leave water in a place that it might make the difference between someone in that position uh, surviving or not. Um, and, and and furthermore, just living in a community where, you know, from the top of the mountain, we can see downtown San Diego and all of the luxury of this military town, um, all of the universities and all of this opportunity that we 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 enjoy. And just a couple of miles away, the lack of access to just water, feeling how similar humans are to each other and our basic needs um, and how that's being taken from people um, is, is is really is really harmful. And particularly, as you were saying, um, these are areas held sacred by the Kumeyaay people and have been have been places of migration for at least 10,000 years. These are places that were difficult to travel and that people did for similar reasons to survive, to be safe. And there is a legacy of Oyas, of 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 clay pots buried in the sand for travelers um, that has been ongoing for thousands of years. And for our current administration and government to create this wall in this place of so much pain is just testament to just the insanity of our desire to protect border against something else, to protect the borders against something that, that we feel is harmful to us. Meanwhile, this migration is fundamentally how we survive and how we respond to these moments of change in, hum in humanity. And and cr criminalizing that and causing hardship of that is, is just barbaric. I'll let you collect your thoughts and you can come back and make that statement because I think you do it very eloquently. But I want to jump on there and just kind of... Um, echo and elaborate on what you said. Yeah, we find lots and lots of um, physical items, but we also meet people on the trails. And, and that's a new thing. You know, I've been doing these water drops for, for some time now. Um, but you know, when you say what has changed under Biden, uh, not much. <laughs> There's more people crossing the border than ever. There are more people dying than ever. As far as as a volunteer who spends most weekends uh, out in the borderlands, the only thing I notice is they stopped building Trump's 30 foot high fence 
and they started pouring all that money into electronic surveillance, where every single month we see more towers popping up all along uh, the border with all kinds of uh, very, very fancy military grade uh, surveillance equipment, um, and as well as aerial surveillance, lots of airplanes, helicopters. Um, I'm not sure if they're using drones, but we certainly, there's a lot of uh, aerial surveillance. But what we see as far as the, the human dimension is in the old days, you know, we see footprints, we see shoe covers, you know, which people wear on their feet to hide their footprints from border patrol. We see the empty uh, water bottles uh, and discarded clothing. But now we're encountering people pretty much every time we do a water drop uh, because the number of people crossing is so high. People are crossing in the daytime, whereas in the, the past, uh, usually they would cross at night. So wouldn't you say, Emmett, like pretty much it's uh, it's pretty much every time we go out, uh, at least one of our volunteers, if not the whole group, um, uh, sees or even interacts uh, with with a migrant uh, on on the paths, um, and you know, and of course we respect we respect their autonomy, their privacy. We don't engage with them if they don't want to engage with us. But the uh, the thing that I'll never forget um, is uh, about a month ago. We were out in this exact same area supplying the same path, um, and it was a rainy day, cold. We were wearing our Gore-Tex um, insulated uh, clothing. We'd done a water drop. While we were doing the water drop, we can see on the next mountain peak, a Border Patrol helicopter landing uh, to pick up somebody who required rescue. And this is a case that we had been getting updates all night with Armadillos, uh, one of the search groups. Uh, and thankfully this, this uh, person was found alive and uh, Border Patrol was uh, so-called rescuing him, uh, another word for arresting him. And uh, after we witnessed that, uh, we uh, hiked back to our vehicles. And just as we were um, getting to the trailhead, the exact same location where on March 18th, uh, Emmett and other volunteers had this interaction with the two Border Patrol agents who destroyed the humanitarian aid supplies, the exact same parking spot. Uh, we, we pop out and start walking toward our vehicles and it starts snowing and two individuals uh, come out of the mist and, uh, uh, and, you know, approach us and start talking to us in Spanish um, and talking to these two people. These two men, uh, one one young, one middle aged, in the course of the conversation, you know. <laughs> sorry, I kind of choke up when I, I talk about this stuff. Yeah, it's okay. But uh, yeah, so this was uh, um, the younger of the two was sixteen years old, and uh, the older dude was his father. We encountered them as it was snowing. So of course, first thing we did is uh, got them in our vehicles. Uh, one of our volunteers, avid hiker, had his backpacking stove with him and uh, cooked up some tea and some, um, you know, gave them food and, and you know, let them warm up. We gave them literally the, you know, Gore-Tex uh, winter coats off our backs to warm up. And once the, you know, uh, the dad was shivering violently, really, really showing signs of uh, clinical hypothermia. 
and talking to the the uh, the younger man who was in better physical shape, he was explaining that the two of them were hiking through the mountains because um, his mother uh, was already living in the USA. They were trying to reunite with her, and they had been in this uh, mountainous uh, region for the past two days. Jesus. And looking at them, uh, they're wearing uh, hoodies, you know, like. Uh, you know, sweatshirts, sweatpants, and sneakers. In this, and anybody who lives down here in Southern California, you know, we've had a very unusual winter, lots and lots of rain. Um, so it had been raining uh, heavily over the past two days, uh, and nighttime temperatures in the 30s. And these two men had been out there for two days, soaked to the bone. And uh, that's why they approached us because they were in trouble and they were asking for help. Um, so after they warmed up, um, we discussed the options. Of course, you know, we, we, we respect their autonomy. Um, you know, they have the option to try to continue going uh, on their way with, with supplies, or if uh, they felt it was unsafe to do so, we were ready uh, to help them. The heartbreaking thing is, you know, they did ask us, could we uh, let them ride in our vehicles off the mountain? And we had to explain that, you know, we were we were pretty much guaranteed to encounter Border Patrol agents on that road. And that really, it's not something that that we could do because you know that 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 you know we we could be arrested and charged uh you know for federal felony crimes but we said look you know if you really feel you can't continue we will help you contact you know call 911 but we explained that's that's 100% going to result in border patrol coming uh, because as folks may know you know um you know in the USA along the border um you know, emergency medical response, search and rescue is is unfortunately considered in the domain of law enforcement. Yeah. Uh, so if you are a U.S. citizen or if you are someone from another country that happened to come here and have a visa or just be considered the good type of foreigner, yeah. you know, you're going to have a very impressive response with sheriffs, uh, sheriff's department, search and rescue, volunteer organizations. If there's any hint that you may be a so-called undocumented uh, person, it immediately gets sent to Border Patrol and you have, you know, Borstar uh, respond, the you know, Border Patrol search and rescue group, which is a, a far cry uh, from the, uh, the civilian uh, search and rescue folks. So we explained to them, if we call 911, uh, you're, you're, you're going to be apprehended, you're going to be arrested by Border Patrol. And after thinking about it and discussing, they said, yeah, we, you know, we cannot continue. We, we're, we're, you know, this is uh, too dangerous. So we did call 911 and Border Patrol did come and um, frisked them and uh, cuffed them and uh, Jesus. Yeah. yeah, did arrest them. And uh, yeah, that's not, not the only time uh, that uh, too often we have witnessed um human beings being arrested by border patrol. Yeah. And thank you for sharing that. I think, I think it's really important to give like, uh, put like faces and names to these things rather than the border patrol will constantly talk about the million, whatever encounters, right. They like to fucking inflate the numbers because it's often the same people, but, 
um it's each one of those is a tragedy right every time someone has to make a choice between risking their life in one place or, or risking their life coming to another place just so their kids can have a crack at growing up safely or, or so they can be safe or so they can experience like one tenth of the things that we take for granted every day like that's an incredible human tragedy and and yeah they happen every single day every hour of every day at our border because of the things that our government does there and uh yeah it's important to feel that stuff because i think that's it, it should provoke in all of us a very strong reaction it's pretty messed up that there's almost universal bipartisan agreement that it's fine and okay by people who have never been here and don't understand the one other thing i want to to add and emmett you may have other things uh one thing i wanted to to really uh center is something we've referenced several times um kumye you know this is this is kumye land these are the indigenous people uh who have lived here since the beginning of time um the archaeological record goes back ten thousand years but we know people have been here since the the beginning of of human uh, time, really. And um, look at the map. Um, this so-called border cuts in half uh, uh, traditional uh, Kumye territory. Uh, when we do these uh, water drops out in the desert or in the mountains, you know these these paths that that people are using to migrate are often, uh, or in many many cases uh traditional uh, kumyai paths mm -hmm. and uh we see evidence of that every time uh we you know do a water drop uh, especially out out uh in in the desert areas where it's a rare water drop that we will not find uh pottery shards uh lying lying in the sand uh or come across uh rock shelters uh some with pictographs um and uh the you know it's just uh you know, very poignant juxtaposition of of Kumeyaay cultural artifacts with modern day, you know, uh, shoe covers, discarded water bottles, and of course, many people who do migrate uh, are indigenous uh, uh, them themselves. Um, so, yeah, personally, you know, I view all of these border issues uh, through the lens of history, culture, uh, with with uh, the core uh truth that this is indigenous land this is kumyai land and it had has always been and uh the modern so-called border is a very recent uh, uh political um creation you know that you know mid 19th century you know before that this was mexico <laughs> and now yeah. now where we we call it the the usa but this is all recent and from my perspective, unless you are a Kumye, I really don't know how anybody could can really get on their high horse and really speak with uh, any authority about who belongs here, who belongs here, who doesn't belong here, because the rest of us, we are all guests on Kumye land. And that includes every single Border Patrol uh, agent. And that's that's something I always like to remember yeah yeah the border is very much like colonialism in action and it's even we're going to have some uh kumeyaay folks hopefully in the next couple of weeks to talk about the desecration of kumeyaay burial sites by the border wall which is an ongoing thing like it hasn't stopped when the just i can't tell stories about it like i could in 2020 because you know 
Orange Man bad isn't a thing anymore. But yeah, like all across the border, right? Not just here, like the Yaki, the Tohonodham, all all across the border is native land. The whole of the so-called United States is native land. And uh, it, it's not indigenous folks out there trying to kill people in the desert. Is there anything, Emmett, that you wanted to add? Yeah, um, just want to say this well. Uh, I know we'll, we'll stop, we can ramble forever, so we'll stop, stop rambling in a second. But um, I guess I really want to say, and this is coming from a very skewed white male's perspective, but I just feel like so much of these power structures that we're engaged with and, and us as a nation trying to uh, find our identity, it's so hypocritical. Um, particularly in this moment uh, where uh, climate and social instability is at its uh, its, its height. I mean, in, in my lifetime, and I think in many of our lifetimes, we see this as a really precarious moment. Yeah, It, it just feels so, so hypocritical to police people's sovereignties to find safety and to be in safety. Um, you know, we, we have all of these ideals um, in our country around respecting each other's freedoms. Um, and also as we are importing and exporting so many goods and also so much culture and so fundamentally intertwined with um, the lives of, of people from all over the world, for us to say what is wrong and what is right in this moment and for us to have this, this moral authority to, to put people in, in, in prison just for, for, for seeking safety for many years. And I, of course, I have many people who I know and live with who have been in, in, who went, were in detention for, for several years. Um, for seeking that the the amount of um, just how twisted it is that we are comfortable spending our lives as Americans never considering um, or never really critically engaging um, with this active uh, pursuit <laughs> this act these actions to 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 limit people's abilities to survive um, to feels like uh, it, it really needs to be centered in this conversation. And again, this is coming from my skewed perspective, but I just um, I really want to make the, the point clear. This is not about um, this is not about these these lofty ideals um, of what a country could be or who and who is not justified or useful in our country. Um, we make these arbitrary assessments um, of what's justified or what's legal and not legal. And very often, those are just continuing the legacy of exploitation of black and brown people, the exploitation of landscapes, the exploitation of labor, the exploitation of people whose voices are not uh, heard and politically, economically, um, and continuing a conversation of in Otay Mason Center, um, the people who are detained are, are are cleaning their own cells and their 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 labor is actually being exploited as well. You can't distinguish the fact that there is the, the history of policing in our country and the history of prisons is specifically a project to continue white supremacy. Um, and and you, you can see particularly the uh, differential policing of immigration uh, currently and the differential um, uh, way that certain people from certain countries are or are not valid. Uh, to uh, to enter this country and and at the very least be treated with respect and dignity in their process and that's what we see CBP uh, every single day violating people's basic access to human dignity and access to life which are protected 
by all nations in in writing and very often not in practice yeah yeah i think this well said like it's a very basic human thing it doesn't need to be like shrouded in constitutional law and like you also said like capital flows very freely across across the border um but people aren't allowed to and, and yeah it's pretty messed up and guys where can people if they want to support if they want to just send a kind word where can people find you uh on the internet well, the best way probably is on Instagram. Uh, we have an account, Borderlands Relief Collective. Uh, reach out to us. And I do want to give a shout out to our our, our sister organizations, uh, Border Kindness, their water drop program uh, led by Jacqueline and James has been doing yeah. tremendous work for years. Uh, Border Angels, which is kind of the parent organization of water drop uh, volunteer groups in California. Um, our, our comrades uh, who do search and rescue, as well as recovery of those who have, have died, including Armadillos uh, and Aguilas, uh, Eagles of the Desert. Um, very, very proud to be in this community of, of people who are trying to help people in the borderlands yeah yeah thank you very much guys that was really great hey we'll be back monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe it could happen here is a production of cool zone media for more podcasts from cool zone media visit our website coolzonemedia.com or check us out on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts you can find sources for it could happen here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources Thanks for listening. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.